It's the Sagabit Swing and Report Show. Get ready for Saga news and commentary with your hosts, George and Barry. Hello and welcome to the 50th episode of the Sagabit Swing and Report Show. I'm Barry and with me is George. Hello. And it's a very special episode as next week is the 14th anniversary of the Sega Dreamcast console. And joining us are three very special guests who covered the launch as well as uh, pretty much the entire lifespan of the console. We have Francesca Reyes, the former writer of the official Dreamcast magazine and current editor-in-chief of the official Xbox magazine. Hi. (laughs) We also have Simon Cox former editor-in-chief of the official Dreamcast magazine and a video game media veteran working on Edge, GMR, Xbox Nation, 1UP.com, GameCube, and InVision. Have I missed any? No, that'll do for now. All right. And uh, (laughs) we also have Ricardo Torres, former editor-in-chief of GameSpot, and he also worked at CNET Game Center during uh, the duration of the Dreamcast's lifespan. So first, I want to thank all of you for coming on. Uh, I'm amazed that we could get all three of you at once, Um, so I'm really hoping it's a good discussion, and I personally want to thank all of you just for um, all the work that you did during the uh, Dreamcast lifespan, because, uh, you know, the internet definitely wasn't wasn't, what it is now, so uh, (laughs) it was, uh, you were pretty much, especially the official Dreamcast magazine was pretty much my entire source for anything concerning the console. So, yeah, thank you. <laughs> that was me uh, fanboying out, so that's about it. Well, you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I figured we'd do this show more as a roundtable discussion. We just have a few, maybe four points that I thought we could all talk about. The first one I wanted to cover was um, what memorable moments do you all have from the Dreamcast's American launch? Were you invited to any special events? Um, <laughs> especially, uh, you know, the official Dreamcast magazine, were there any perks involved? So um, I guess whoever wants to kick it off can. I, I, you know, it was, it's all kind of a blur for me. You know, I remember that there was a launch party for Dreamcast back on, like, I, I don't remember, was it on nine nine ninety nine that there was the launch party, or was it a, I don't remember the date that the I, actual party happened. That was but. definitely the launch date, but yeah, I don't know what the party was. I've seen photos. Yeah, I, I don't remember it, which, you know, that's probably good, I guess. <laughs> I mean, overall, uh, <laughs> I don't remember that at all. Uh, um, I... I can't. Okay, so here's a test. Do you guys remember the SegaNet party? Was that the same thing as the launch party? God, we all sound like we have Alzheimer's or something. <laughs> this, is, this is like memento with no tattoos. But I have a very, I have a very like vivid memory of some kind of SegaNet launch party. I I don't think that was the Ice T one. It could have been. Ice T was there. Um, and there was were, one wow. with Ice T. I don't even remember yeah. that. I think that I think I think there was um, the like the, the only other thing I, I like remember pretty close to launch was Sega held a gamers day at their offices on Townsend where they showed off essentially what was the lineup. Oh, wow. Um, and yeah, because I, I found a couple old notes that I had written and it was just oof. 
I YouTube some of that stuff, and you're like, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was um, it was pretty funny. I mean, because uh, I think at that point there was all this controversy over just it was all super um, idiosyncratic stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, like if you remember, there were all these VMU mini games in Soul Calibur for in Japan, and it didn't sound like they were going to come out in the West. And the poor, I don't even think it was official Namco PR. I think it was just like a marketing girl was there showing off the game. And everybody was inundating her with questions about if the VMU stuff was going to come out and what did this mean for the game. And she was, she was so like, okay, look, just play the game. It's the complete game. I don't know what to tell you. Please enjoy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's like, shut up and eat the canapes. It pretty much, right? Because you remember back in those days, there was um, there was a, a much bigger press pool, and speaking, you know, speaking on behalf of the online contingent, we we didn't quite have the respect of print because I don't think a lot of people really believe this online thing was gonna take off. Right. But so I still we, don't. yeah. <laughs> so we were definitely um, uh, the redheaded stepchildren for a lot of this stuff. They completely you know, we're taking care of the print magazines and we were all there kind of like in just a, a large group. Um, and at that time, just getting any kind of access was a pain if you weren't a print magazine. So I, I think a lot of folks, thankfully I wasn't, I wasn't quite so ghetto fabulous, but a lot of people just uh, seize that opportunity with a little bit too much zeal and would just kind of assault these poor people that were like, look, man, I don't know. I just, right. I brought the game. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I have a couple of stories about the la- about the launch of the magazine, actually, which was, of course, heavily tied into the launch of the console. But yeah. um, I don't know whether that you want to hear that. But Definitely. Um, actually, I was wondering how early did you start working on it? Well, I know definitely the console wasn't released, but... Um... <laughs> it felt like too late. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it felt like... I, I feel like we, we started working on the magazine like 10 minutes before the thing launched, and it was kind of like, you, you need to do a magazine. But... Um, I guess it must have been, uh, when did issue zero, we got issue zero out for E3, right? So that would have been June. So that, that black issue with Sonic on the front, sort of, you know, sort of that, that repeating dummy issue that had like, was it 16 or 32 pages repeating dummy issue? And, um, See, 32 pages, uh, June, 1999. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, we were a good, like four months ahead then, right? It must have been. Yeah. Uh, of the launch um three months four months so yeah so we had that that time but my my abiding memory of that actually is the struggle to to launch it to get ready for the launch to figure out a design for the magazine to uh get a team together assembled um even just our office space and i and i actually remember one of my bosses um i feel like i had like 10 bosses at that point but i I seem to remember my boss uh taking me into a room at uh, Imagine Media, as it was then. It's now Future US, of course. Um, and, you know, it was pretty open plan, the office, apart from this one space, which had doors <laughs> and a ceiling. And it was kind of like, okay, we have our own private space here. And this was kind of a space that was hallowed ground because magazines had launched from here and been successful. And I remember my boss um, taking me in there and showing me these sort of this empty room with all these empty desks. And he says, you know, this is going to be your space to launch the magazine out of. And I was really happy about that because it meant we could play loud music and play games. And I was really into dance music at the time. So I could play my music without annoying everybody, which was great. 
And he said to me, he said, Simon, um, no magazine that's ever launched out of this room has ever failed. Don't fuck it up. <laughs> and, um, I'll never forget that because it was kind of like, hey, here's the good news. You've got this room. Here's the bad news. I'm watching you. Oh, well. And it was sort of, um, it was a really high pressure situation. We didn't have, we didn't have uh, a team together at that point. And um, we actually had quite a high profile member of another magazine um, come over to work with us. I was really happy to get this person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, <laughs> a critical juncture during the production of the, of the magazine, um, this person left, uh, kind of bailed, and um, it made things very, very difficult. It made the launch very, very difficult. And mm-hmm. we, we didn't have a design either. We had to panic uh, two weeks from launch of the first issue and just copy a design from a magazine from the UK that was part of our sort of sister sister magazines from the UK. So it was it was a real nightmare of a launch. Um, really enjoyable, but I mean, there were some real like scrapes going on there. I mean, we had to put a design together for a magazine in, in no time, in like three days, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't remember any of this, weirdly. Only when? because I, I think I was just too busy playing like Sega Bass Fishing. <laughs> <laughs> when did you come on uh, the magazine, friend? Um, I was there from the very beginning, right, yeah. Simon? I mean, maybe not from when you were brought down into the room and given the talk by the bosses, by the overlords. But, I mean, like, I think I was there from issue zero on. Yeah, I definitely and, see your picture in here. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not going to post Oh, God. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, I think I was there from the very beginning. I was in that small, tiny room for a while, and I think I saw all the iterations of the staff from there on out and um, all the way until the magazine closed. So, Yep. You hung in there. <laughs> that's, that's my superpower. <laughs> Hanging in there. <laughs> superpower is survival. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Wow. But it was, it was a, I mean, it was pretty brutal. I think you, I think you probably just had headphones on, like, you know, listening to music and doing, and doing your job while, um, you know, I was I was leaning over the shoulder of of, uh, of our designer. Um, you know, driving him mental, trying to get the magazine, <laughs> trying to get the magazine to look the way that uh, the way that we wanted it to look. But um, that was so that was pretty rough, actually. It was it was a really tough last minute launch. And I remember issue zero um, going to Sega to present the plan for issue zero to Bernie Stoller. Oh wow! Right? Oh, yeah, and. Bernie, <laughs> Bernie's a tough cookie, right? I mean, that's one way of putting it, and I'll leave it at that. Um, and we went to Sega to, to present Issue Zero to him, and uh, we kind of got into a bit of a fight, him and I. We had this big meeting, and it was kind of like this big mafia meeting. Like, it was Bernie Stoller and his lieutenants around this huge table, and they sort of came mob-handed. You know, there were like sort of 10 of them around this, this, this table, and uh, I went with uh, Jonathan Simpson, Bint, and Matt Firm, who were who were my bosses at, at, at the time. Mm-hmm. We went in there, and we were really proud of the work that we'd done so far on on the magazine. And we got in there, and Bernie Stoller didn't like it. Hmm. He didn't like the cover that we were planning to do for E3, and he didn't like the cover lines that I'd come up with either. And so he's and Bernie used to work on the Village Voice. So he knows publishing 
And so he decided that he could tell us what, how we should do it. And um, I wasn't very amused by that and told him that I was the editor-in-chief and that we were going to do it the way I wanted to do it, or not at all. Nice. <laughs> and, um, and there was this silence in the room. And he went a little bit red-faced, actually. And I could see that I'd made the wrong move, totally. Like, this is not the guy that you say that kind of thing to. And I was really full of myself, I think. I just thought, yeah, we're doing it my way, you know. Oh, and, that's you. Uh, that's you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And he just got up. He, just, he stood up and he, and, he, and he said, no, he said, no, you effing won't. You'll do it. Like I effing want you to. And it was just like, and then Jonathan Simpson Bint got up my boss and said, hey, we just need to calm things down a little bit here. And it was just, it became this kind of thing. And, mm. uh, you know, it was a frosty meeting and it ended shortly afterwards. And I remember uh, my boss sort of saying to me, well, you handled that well. Oh, nice. Yeah, <laughs> I'm... Oh, yeah. sorry. I was I was looking at your um, your intro to the issue zero, and you definitely push that aspect really hard. You say you're official, um, and then you say, "Oh, so we can't say what we want, right? Wrong. This magazine carries the official license because that's the way, the best way to give you, the reader, the best value of every issue." But it also you also note that um, you are still uh, uh, licensed or independent in that sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that was, I mean, Fran, maybe you'd agree, but like, I, I think we were kind of known for, for, for giving Sega, um, we loved Sega, we loved the Dreamcast, we loved the system, we loved Sega, mm -hmm. but we didn't hesitate to criticize them on occasion, right, Fran? I mean, I feel like... Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I look back at, like, our reviews mm -hmm. in that issue, in, in all the issues, and I'm always surprised because I'm like, wow, we scored these, some of these games really low i mean i remember some of the reviews i did i was like wow um for an official magazine we were pretty brutally honest yeah. i was taken know? back by your seaman review it was six oh, out of ten and that's like a game like i was i was like oh wow the seaman review i was just reading through them again and i was like i love this game it must be a, like a nine and in those days no you gave it a six <laughs> I, that, <laughs> that is the one review that i remember yeah, like a hundred percent all the way from way back then to now because I remember I think there was someone at Sega who was really, really upset about that yeah. score that I didn't the, understand the game. No, you were fair though because I, I was reading the review and you know one of the negative points was the voice recognition was off and it was I mean it wasn't perfect and I definitely think that did hurt the game. Um, same with your Sonic Adventure review in issue zero, you give it an eight out of ten. Yeah. which is still a really good score. That's for the Japanese version, but you did note the glitches and the camera, which was one of those things I always thought a lot of people looked past back then and they only started to notice maybe five years down the line. But I, you know, it's, it's interesting that you were pointing out these flaws at the time. So it definitely shows that there wasn't some sort of rose-tinted uh, rose glasses going on. Ricardo, what, what did you guys think of, of the launch tiles? Uh, we were pretty like as I, I think I reviewed a couple a couple of them because we were a staff of two. God bless the internet, um, <laughs> and we freelanced a bunch out. We um, we did some import coverage, uh, and that's when you kind of knew that there was some trouble at home, mm -hmm. right? Because I'm you know besides being a video game fan, I was a huge Godzilla fan, and it had been my goal in life to actually get a good game. So of course I imported Godzilla Generation. Oh, and, big mistake. Oh, Oh. So sad. I mean, I even got the freaking Godzilla VMU. I was so excited, and then <laughs> I played it. But um, we were pretty, we were pretty hard on that stuff too. Um, I think we were a little lower on, so on Sonic, 
which um, <laughs> it was the, the funny thing was there was always more pressure, at least at the beginning on the print magazines. If you guys scored stuff low because you guys mattered more to, to them mm-hmm. online, you were just kind of an annoyance, right? So they didn't mind too much. Um, but they're like, all right, well, you're just not going to get stuff next time. It's like, fine, I'll buy it. Um, so it wasn't that huge of a deal, but I just remember being super excited because I was a Sega fan from back in the day and it was good to see them kind of getting their shit together mostly. Mm -hmm. Um, but obviously Sonic didn't turn out the way that I wanted it. I mean, Sonic had been, he'd been having a rough time for a while. We all know this. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was kind of a bummer. Um, but I also remember actually... Um, do you guys remember the, the bad burns for the launch titles? Oh yeah. I have a few actually. I bought some off of eBay and they don't yeah. work and it's yeah. kind of difficult to explain to them. I'm like, I can get to the menu. They go, Oh, it's scratched. I'm like, no, you sold me a defective copy. Yeah. I've, um, I remember that because hopefully somebody remembers it. Cause I swear to God, I'm not making this up. Do you guys remember that I think it was maybe the month before, so in August, you could rent the Dreamcast from Hollywood Video? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and so I did that, right? Because Sega wasn't being super great about getting us products, so I'm like, all right, fine, I'll just go rent it. And so I flew through all these hoops, because back then, it was almost like buying a car. When you rented a hardware system from whatever. Yeah. And I, I remember... Like, I finally got their little armored suitcase, and it had the hardware, it had Sonic, and I think it might have had Pen Pen. <laughs> um, and it had a controller, only one, so that was a problem for Pen Pen. Even better, though, no VMU. <laughs> so I was like, hey. And they're like, no, no, it'll be fine. But then I go home, and I had, it was one of the bad discs to boot. Oh, wow. So. You know, that never kind of got settled because back in those days, like Blockbuster, Hollywood Video, they were not big on tech support. Mm -hmm. So um, I just remember kind of having that tempered enthusiasm because I wanted it to be so exciting, but it didn't work out that way. I came to love it a lot more after launch because I got to see a lot of the, the other stuff that was coming. But, you know, even based on the Japanese stuff, that Godzilla thing, that that left a scar. Yeah, the uh, the Japanese launch really wasn't that strong. I'm looking here. It was was it really just four games? Virtua Fighter, Sega Rally, Pen Pen. Something called July. I'm seeing here. Yeah, that was. Uh, that's more a Fran game. Fran, wasn't that a visual novel of some kind? <laughs> Why is that my type? Of <laughs> that's your game now. <laughs> I don't even remember. <laughs> July was a 1998 adventure game uh, by 45 released. There's really not that much more about it. <laughs> it comes with a metallic cover. That's all I can find. Woo. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember that one. But no, um, uh, my friend actually imported one before I did because he was an even bigger VF diehard than I was. So he just came over and it's like, oh, check out my bag. And we all like lost our mind. But we also kind of freaked out because the performance issues in VF and Sega Rally were like they were upsetting mm-hmm. right especially because sega's whole heritage was arcade and we'd had this hope that finally we were going to get hardware where we were going to get really good <laughs> arcade conversions struggle continues um <laughs> and just really freaked out because vf was not so great it got better for the u.s release but and so i do give them credit because they'd made quite uh 
quite a hefty amount of improvements from Japanese to U.S. Mm-hmm. Sega Rally still wasn't perfect, but it was a lot better than the slideshow that you know the Japanese game would turn into at times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm noticing in um, uh, the second Sonic Adventure review for the American version, it actually went up a point to 9 out of 10. Uh, so, noting the, uh, the changes that were made to the camera and some of the bugs that existed. <laughs> <laughs> noting that Bernie Stoller came around and threatened to kill me. Yeah, probably. They did improve it a bit, didn't they? They did. Yeah, they did. Yeah. It was, I'm, I'm sorry. I was just going through the, the roundup of some of the reviews that we did for things like Expendable, Dynamite Pop, and like, um, man, we were, we were taking these things to task, weren't we? Yeah. It's crazy. Like, I, I think the main thing I remember was Speed Devils, right, Simon? Like, do you remember Speed Devils? It was, I think it was like Ubisoft. It like, was that Ubisoft yeah. racer, right? Yeah. There uh, were two. Speed Devils yeah. 1 or Speed Devils Online? No, it was Speed Devils 1. It was the one that came out at launch or Oof. around launch in the launch window. Yeah, I believe that was a launch window title. Yeah, and I think that was the one that you reviewed, Simon. Do you remember that one? I don't, but I tell you. Oh, actually, I'm, I'm starting to remember. It's starting to come <laughs> to me. And the funny thing is, it, it's, it's an Ubisoft game. And throughout my career... Ubisoft think I hate them. And I, I wonder if that's where it started, actually. Because it I very well might have. I don't hate them. I love so many of their games. But at key moments, I'm the guy, I think, who's who's done some stuff, you know, written some rev- written a review or made a comment about something, you know, about the thing that they put their marketing push behind that month. And so um, I think that might have been one of those times where they were really behind it. And I mean, Ubisoft, um, I mean, EA were not into the Dreamcast at all, right? I mean, they were pretty much absent from the whole whole thing. Did they do anything for the Dreamcast, EA? They were totally absent. Completely was, gone. Yeah, they didn't uh, support it at I all. I think the excuse was the architecture. Huh. Yeah, right. Not the uh, giant bag of cash that was given to them by Sony. No, dude, it was the Power VR <laughs> chip, clearly. <laughs> yeah, Power VR chip. Um, and I just, I think probably with Speed Devils, it's one of those things where those... Um, Moments where Ubisoft was like, okay, EA's out of the picture. We're going to step up, right? And his speed devils. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then I and then I and then I think I just took it to pieces, probably in the review. Yeah. 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 It was one of the lower scores, I believe. We gave it a three out of ten. Oh my God. <laughs> That's pretty low. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. Crap, wasn't it? It was crap, wasn't it, Ricardo? Do you remember it, that? It, dude, it totally was. I mean, yeah. in preparation for this, I've dusted off old Bessie and I've fired up a couple games and. Man, expectations were pretty low back then. <laughs> I see here for Speed Devils in your little um, uh, quick reference section, it was a 3 out of 10. It says, the bane of our existence, reviews-wise, you'll never let us forget it. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Man. I'm just like, just going through them, I'm surprised, um, like, ready to rumble, 6. And I even reviewed that, and I gave it a 6. But I thought that was supposed to be like, my mind is fuzzy, so I don't know. I may have to refer to you guys um, who've played it more recently. Like, it was, did it get, was it did the it first one or the second like one that you slammed? Um, it was the, the launch one. Okay. I well, think, the launch one was a port, I think. Yeah, they're really, I, I found that there just wasn't that much to it. I mean, you, you had the ring, you had the fighters. It was a fun game, but it was a pretty shallow arcade port. Um, a, lot of, a lot of hype, I think. That was the deal with that one. There was yeah. a huge amount of publicity around that. Because of well, it was the, Midway, remember? 
Yeah, that's right. It was midway doing their usual song and dance, you know. Uh-huh. So, um, plus it was all supposed to be crazy high-res graphics, I remember, because Next Generation, the magazine at the time, did they put it on their cover or something yes. where it was like yes. it was supposed to be like back then because, you know, granted with the PS1 we were coming out of like the 2D era into 3D. But I think at some point everyone got in their mind that, oh, my God, the, the graphics in these games are so good. They could be cover material just on their own. Like so. <laughs> so you could put Oops. a screenshot on the cover and it'd be just as awesome as a render or whatever. And I remember Ready to Rumble was kind of one of those things in my mind that they used to always hold up as like, oh, my God, the graphics in this are so amazing. We can just put a screenshot on the cover and it'll be just as good as a render and stuff. And um, and I don't know if that was because it was supposedly, you know, quote unquote, next gen at the time, not the magazine, but the actual game itself or not. But um, but, yeah, I remember there was a lot of hype for that game. Yeah, I think that was it, really. I think it was just the difference between the expectation and reality on that one. And, you know, so... It was part of, like, Midway's mini-renaissance, right? Where they were kind of coming back, because they had, what, there was Gauntlet, there was Ray to Rumble, there was Hydra Thunder. Mm-hmm. Arctic Thunder, I think. That's... I think that came after Hydra? I don't know how many mm. Thunders there were. I think there was Hydra and Arctic <laughs> for sure. A couple of Thunders, at least. Well, they had the they had the Rush series, right? On oh, the yeah, N64 yeah. and stuff, so... And, and those were huge. That was yeah, a good game. Just, yeah. That sounds and, like a Steven Seagal movie, Arctic Thunder. <laughs> just sounds like exactly the kind of thing you'd be in. Dude, a lot of these old games have... Because I, I found a bunch of old ones. Man, some of these names. Yeah. <laughs> Urban and Chaos. People, yeah, people make fun of the game names now because you had to put it through the Brandometer to find out what hasn't been trademarked or what hasn't... Like, what Earl is free to still register <laughs> but i mean back then they were just crazy like added like they would just pair n- names together like a adjective and a noun and it didn't matter but <laughs> but i do feel like we're getting negative on the dreamcast launch it was oh. pretty awesome what, yeah. is, what was your favorite games from the launch oh i'm sorry we're done da- me or uh, oh, any, okay. anybody that wants to answer it because um, <laughs> I'm still trying to remember. Well, you want me to name out the you want me to name the games that came out for the Soul launch? Soul Calibur. Sorry, well, I'm, Soul I'm, I'm an idiot. Soul... Yeah, oh, Soul yeah. Calibur came out. Son, uh, Sonic Adventure, Power Stone, Hydro Thunder, Marvel Marvel vs. Capcom, The House of the Dead Two, and NFL Two K. At launch? That's what it. That's what it says right here. Yeah. You also oh. had uh, Air Force Delta, Blue Stinger, Expendable, Flag oh. the Flag. Oh, I've got the list now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think Soul Calibur was at launch, was it? Was it launch? It was launch. Yes. Yeah, that was the really killer app, too. What an amazing launch, actually. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think I liked, I liked, I liked, I loved Soul Calibur. I loved Sega Rally um, Championship. It was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, I quite liked Sonic. I mean, I did like it. I liked it, but it was over fairly quickly. Um, and Power Stone, we were playing that in the office nonstop, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I was Sonic Adventure, Soul Calibur, um, Power Power Stone, Soul Calibur, and Sonic. I think those are my big three. Because oh, and House of the Dead too. Ah, right. Yeah, the House uh, of the Dead too is 
classic. So yeah. I mean, it's just yeah. Of the of the eighteen games, I think it really covered all of the uh, uh, genres really well. I mean, there's a few where it's lacking. I don't I don't know about racing. I think some of the better racing games came later, but. Well, they- um, they certainly tried to cover racing because there was like what four or five games. A lot, yeah. Hydro Thunder for one, uh, Flag to Flag. I guess, yeah. So it's but uh, Trick Style that was kind of a wacky game. But that was um, part of the the hoverboarding craze yes. that took place in video games. Great times. <laughs> but it is weird looking at um, new system launches that racing games tend to always kind of be in force. You know, I mean, you look at the upcoming ones with like Xbox One and PS4, and there's all these racing games again, you know, and I think it's just they show off the next gen kind of the the allure of the graphics and stuff, probably the best, I would guess, you know, and it doesn't require a lot of like moving parts as far as like 10,000 characters on the screen and stuff like that, except for the crowds and stuff. But I mean such a trip but there were no rpgs right no rpgs no i mean closest is blue stinger but that was really more of a adventure game well yeah. sonic was kind of a, an rpg you were earning bracelets <laughs> that's true <laughs> <laughs> like i got my shoes like and my bracelets what do you like want is that a rave or something <laughs> right. no but but yeah there were no rpgs those came later because i'm trying to remember what was the first rpg to come out on dreamcast was it wasn't it evolution? stalkers or evolution it might have been evolution yeah <laughs> I think it was Evolution, yeah. Which God, is why weird. I remember this it. last week. That's such a shame for me. <laughs> but, I mean, what were you guys, like, Barry and George, what were you guys doing for launch? Like, what what were your favorite games? Did you go wait in line? Oh, man. Um, well, here, George, why don't you go? Um, I, I got it with Power Stone. And uh, I didn't get it because I wanted Power Stone. I went in late to get it. I got it, like, a week after. And they only had Power Stone and uh, I forgot what other game they had on the shelf. And I got Power Stone because they had anime characters on the... And I was really into Dragon Ball Z at the time. <laughs> so I thought, oh, I'm going to get it. So I got it and I, I love that game. I think it's a great game. I got lucky. I dodged a bullet. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I was... Um, my birthday's in November. So I had to wait a few months in order to build up the cash from all the grandparents and um, I, it was a difficult wait, but I think it paid off because a lot of better games came out by that time. But uh, I remember I went in, I f- believe it was a Target, I purchased it, the console, um, and I got Sonic Adventure because I was a huge Sonic fan, and I still am. And I got home, and I started playing, and I, and I had uh, something similar to Ricardo. The game worked, but I didn't buy a VMU because I didn't know what they were. Oh. <laughs> I, thought, I, saw the, my, I think I saw them, and I was like, so I guess it's like like a Dreamcast, like Game Boy. I don't need that right now. I'm, I got to play this game first. And so I got home and I'm like, well, how do I save? Because, you know, back in, before that, really, it would either save inside the console like the Saturn did, or it would save on the cartridge. But of course, with the CD, I assume the Dreamcast had internal memory. So and don't I'll, forget your notebook for down for passwords if you needed them. Exactly. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I have the notes section in the back. But um, that's true. Yeah, it, it was really just Sonic Adventure for a, for a while until I built up a small library of games, maybe like 12. Uh, Power Stone was a big one, um, any of the Sonic Team games. But it, it went on for about another five years. I didn't really have that many games, and all of a sudden I just started hitting eBay, and now I have about 150. So. <laughs> wow. So was that the first time that you had played it when you guys picked it up, or had you, did you go to a friend's house? Did you play it around launch at all? 
I I don't remember playing any demo pods. I think I watched videos only. How about uh, you, George? Uh, well, I got it the week it came out. So I mean, I I took it. I would usually stay at my friend's house and we would all play it because uh, I mean we we would we would all get one console. Like I had a PlayStation at the, like before, and he had it in Nintendo sixty four. So <laughs> I would get the Dreamcast and he was gonna get the PS two, and then we would just trade consoles whenever well, we yeah. wanted to play a game. So we would just play together, especially Power Stone since it was multiplayer. Mm. That was a great game. Yeah, I'd say Power Stone two. I probably played the most and. Fancy Star Online. Power Stone oh, is still God. one of Power Stone is still one of those games that you still get people that want to see a, a third game too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Barry we... could confirm. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we get sometimes emails randomly like, "Hey guys, why don't you guys just make another Power Stone?" <laughs> I love when we're we're thought to be Sega. They're like, "Hey Sega, make Shenmue and Power Stone, please." <laughs> I'm like, "Well, you got to talk to Sega and you got to talk to Capcom." So. <laughs> but um, yeah, that I I mean I. I didn't spend that much at launch, but I definitely got a lot out of the console. So, um, another question I wanted to ask you guys from a gaming media perspective: What was it like working with Sega of America in the Dreamcast era? Especially, I mean, I guess with ODCM, it was kind of a special connection because you had the license going. But um, I guess this one also more goes towards Ricardo because he was kind of an outsider of Sega coming at toward to them. So. Um, you tell that, any stories or what it was like? I mean, was there a community team or? Well, I could, I could tell stories, but I'm pretty sure Fran and Simon might dispute the fact that it was a cakewalk because they had the official license, right? <laughs> <laughs> it was, I mean, I've worked on, that was my first official magazine, I believe. And, and um, of all the different hardware manufacturers, because I worked on PSM as well for PlayStation before I went to Dreamcast. Okay. And um, and before that, I was on multi-platform magazines. So like, um, so you worked with all the different hardware manufacturers and first parties. But I always found Sega, especially during that period, I thought they were awesome to work with. They were always completely like uh, they were super responsive, um, up for whatever, and really, really like forthcoming and just um, super up about a lot of stuff. I mean, back then it was slightly different than it is now. They, things weren't nearly as controlled as they are now when it comes to publishers and the media. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and granted, granted, maybe to their detriment, you know, but there were a lot less outlets in a way too, and they didn't have the media see of online as much as it is now. So yeah, like a lot media. of, yeah, and a lot of definitely social media has changed a lot. But I mean, and even things like community, they didn't really have community back then. You know, like the media was their community Interesting. in some ways. So, I mean, it was, they. you know, I'm sure they had their own kind of ways of dealing with, because the internet was still there, obviously, because Ricardo was getting paid. <laughs> <laughs> I was, thank God, not on wood. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, but it was just very different, you know, back then, especially compared to now. And, um, but I don't know, like, I the stuff with Bernie Stoller and Simon, mm-hmm. notwithstanding, <laughs> Sega was pretty awesome to deal with, like, especially later on with like, Peter Moore and um, some of the PR people that worked there. They were very involved and very responsive and totally open to, like, a lot of the ideas and to any of the requests you had. I mean, granted, they couldn't, a lot of stuff was still under NDA, you know, but um, it's it's it was just a very different kind of relationship than what a lot of you know, a lot of the first parties have now with media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it got um, 
it was a little icy at first because it was online and filthy, obviously. <laughs> um, but you know, it's it's pretty much like anything. Uh, if you're consistent and if you're professional and if you're really just on your shit, because mm-hmm. for the most part, any publisher will respond well if you are professional and kind of proactive. Yeah. So once I, you know, you basically had to go through the hazing period where you kind of got iced out on a couple things and then you have to do the polite follow-up. Hey, um, I'm not sure if you forgot us, but kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, once, once you kind of like warmed that up, I got to be pretty fantastic because I got a ton of access, even being a small site at that point, because CNET was big, Game Center was most certainly not. Mm. Right. So we were kind of like the redheaded stepchild within that company that were covering games because they thought that games might amount to something. Thank God. Um, <laughs> and so it, it worked out pretty well because after that, I got to be really familiar with the PR people and just a bunch of the folks there. And it got crazy because after a while, when they kind of after a couple trips to Japan where I got to meet a bunch of folks um, at the home office and stuff, it's weird because you almost get like the stamp of approval. And then they're a little more open with you and they're a little more okay. Because I remember being sent um, a beta version of Samba de Amigo uh, mm. before they'd even announced it for the States. They're like, here, try this. And I'm like, yes, thank you. <laughs> and Seaman and a bunch of early stuff. Because the other thing you have to remember is, especially for this platform, Sega knew that this was it. So they had to, they had to be as accommodating as possible because this was like their big push. So I don't remember really anybody getting the amount of access to developers that we all did um and even software and and just heads ups because um nintendo was like a vault yeah right it's like nothing was getting out of there it was like a black hole light wasn't even escaping they're still like that in a sense isn't aren't they sort of but i mean um even they understand they have to loosen up a little bit yeah back then sony was very process oriented it's like they got to things in their own time, which is fine, right? Um, and the the really the the other funny part, which you know, you guys, which I think the the print folks and I will will just laugh about, is just how for the longest time the U.S. subsidiaries of a lot of these publishers just refused to acknowledge Japan existed. Mm-hmm. So if you're like, so you know that game that just came out in Japan, we're going to import that, okay? We're going to take our own media. Is that all right? And they're like. <laughs> It's not announced for the U.S. We'd really appreciate it if you wouldn't. It's like, okay, cool. I'm going to import it, all right? Okay. <laughs> um, there was a lot of that, but that kind of went away with Sega because they didn't really keep secrets anymore for most of, of the Dreamcast. It mm-hmm. was like, sure, Skies of Arcadia is coming out. Sure, Jet Grind's coming out. What, what else do you want? Yeah. Um, I'd have to agree with Fran too about about Sega from our perspective. They, you know, my Bernie Stoller incident, you know, before we launched aside, um, you know, they had Peter Moore, they had Charlie Belfield in marketing, oh, no. they uh, Brett Blount, I think, wasn't he um, doing PR he was, back was, then? I think he was later. Marketing. I think it was later. Simon, yeah. I think you mean Heather, right? Heather and Karen. Oh, it's Heather. That's right. It's Heather Hawkins. Um, I mean, we had we had pretty good relationships. Uh, with them, I mean, my, my problem was, was you know, there was GamePro and there was EGM, right? And they were fighting for the same games we were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we were every two months, I think, right? Is that right? Yeah, we were, yeah, we yeah. were so, bi-monthly, so, I guess is that what it is. Yeah. So we didn't have as many opportunities each year to 
to kind of, you know, get these exclusives. And so yeah, that was the real fight from my perspective, was just making sure that we got, you know, the, especially the first party stuff, that we got it. Yeah. And from Sega's perspective, it made more sense to not give it to us <laughs> because we, you know, they, we were a captive. Our, our audience had already bought a Dreamcast. <laughs> they, they were more worried about those people who were waiting for a PS2. Mm-hmm. And so it was. It would have been to their benefit to, to give EGM and GamePro both uh, way more exclusives than they did us. But they did right by us, I seem to remember. Um, and you know, and we and we we were often um, down there at that building, which, by the way, is now a Zynga building. Yep, I walked by it uh, just a few <laughs> months ago and took some pictures. Uh, kind of funny. Um, that still creeps me out. Yeah, it is weird. It is, it is weird. Yeah, it's it's weird in all kinds. It's so wrong in a way. It's just. You know, um, <laughs> I just feel like Zynga's everything that's wrong with games, like in, in a company. And, yeah. uh, and, and you know, when that Sega sign, sign came down, I think I, uh, that was a bit sad, I think, you know. You know, from my perspective, which yeah. is, you know, as a traditional gamer, I'm, I'm kind of like, wow, really? <laughs> Another yeah, but, uh, Simon, no one's disagreeing. Yeah, notice that. <laughs> yeah, you notice we're just all, all staying quiet. silent. Yeah, we might become Zynga bits in the future, so we don't want to burn any bridges that's right yeah that's right and and, uh, um, and can i have a job yeah. <laughs> yeah. i i do remember i we walked past zynga my wife and i and i was like let's go in and i walked in and it was the weirdest thing it was like a peewee's playhouse kind of like lunch room i guess with bicycles on the walls and i i didn't know what to think it kind of felt like a weird tgi fridays but um <laughs> You know, so what, the food, the food's free, but they charge you for the ketchup? Like, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, one, one thing, question I had for Francesca and Simon was, um, I noticed up until the release of Shenmue, you guys wrote about it in every single issue. Um, was that something <laughs> mandated by Saga, or was it you really saw something in the game and wanted to report on it and were excited about it? Did we really write about it in every issue? Every issue, there's a preview, wow. either one page, two page. It, it gets bigger and bigger as the release looms. And then you got the front cover uh, of issue eight, Shenmue, greatest game ever, question mark, exclusive review. So it was, it was tremendously exciting what they were doing with that. And for a long time, it was Virtua Fighter RPG, right? Kind of. Mm-hmm. That's... Project Berkeley. Yeah. yeah, you know, so there was all this mystique, I think, around it, and um, this feeling that we were going to have an adventure game with RPG elements, and then when you go to fight someone, it's like Virtua Fighter. We were kind of like, wow, that sounds absolutely incredible. Um, and it turned out to be a classic, obviously, but um, I didn't know we covered every issue. That's I didn't the- either. <laughs> yeah, even the issue zero, I believe, it has uh, a mention. Oh, wow. I just remember, like... I mean, kind of going back to the first point and what Ricardo was talking about with Sega in Japan, mm-hmm. um, it was, I mean, Dreamcast was, and this is going to be getting kind of like teary-eyed over it, but um, aside from like the press relations with the PR and stuff like that, I think Sega Japan was undergoing like this amazing like kind of like change i mean they were treating their internal studios like independent developers you know with like um united game artists smile bit you know and all these different studios yeah and all these different studios were kind of you know being let off the leash to some degree and um kind of encouraged to just kind of follow their muse you know so i mean that's how you got stuff like jet set radio and that's how you got stuff like shenmue and that's you know it's 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 kind of like um, it was it was like a really creative 
time for them on the system and maybe even just slightly after because we saw things like I know Rez was on um, mm-hmm. was on Dreamcast. There was a version on Dreamcast, but even slightly after, like once they went multi-platform, there was still a little bit of that in them, you know, and stuff. And that was just a very like not to be super like precious about it, but it was a super like, very like special time in like game development for like these for like a first party. Um, first party manufacturers slash publisher slash developer to kind of be that, that crazy creative and let their teams kind of follow their bliss was really different at the mm-hmm. time. And also you've got these wild, wildly creative games. You could, that's how you got Samba Dandy go. That's how you got these really like um, kind of, um, out of left field ideas for games. Not all of them are great. You mm-hmm. know, a lot of them, maybe they were made to kind of exploit different peripherals, like with C-Man, with the microphone and, um, and everything. And maybe there was a directive in that, but um, what the teams actually did with each of those directives was kind of what you don't really see much of anymore. Yeah. You know, it's much more calculated now and that's, you know, that's okay. That's because it's a business and they've kind of, and it's kind of grown up, but I mean, Back then, it was just sort of like everyone was younger, the the future was wide open. And so in a way, I think a lot of people look to Dreamcast as this kind of peak uh-huh. of creativity in the game space, um, but they can never really articulate it. And it was also kind of like this pinnacle of Japanese development at that time, where before things started turning more towards like sharing it with Western development and stuff as, as far as on consoles. Mm-hmm. I know you got stuff like Half-Life and Quake and stuff on, on the Dreamcast, but it was still very dominated by Japanese developers, you know, and Japanese developed games. So, um, but there was a definite shift in the culture of game development after the Dreamcast went away. Mm-hmm. That probably was, continues to now. So. Yeah. I always say the Dreamcast was the canary in the gas mine. <laughs> because when it went down, games changed forever. And I will, and I will be all precious about it, <laughs> you know, because I think we never saw games like that before, and we really haven't seen games like that since. Mm-hmm. That were, I mean, there's been some really neat stuff, and we're seeing a lot of really unique and interesting stuff in the indie space right now. But you know, their hands are kind of tied by their budgets and what they can do. So it's. The, the indie stuff is very much fueled by imagination and creativity, which is great. They just don't always have the budget to polish it up. Uh-huh. But, you know, like Fran said, you know, these guys were doing kind of like at that time indie level ideas that were getting big budget treatment and just being incredible. Like, I mean, Space Channel 5, I mean, if it was done right now, I mean, you could do that with like pixel art and like, you know, some colored sprites and it would still be great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But to get that level of polish and to make it look the way that it did was, I mean, you just don't see stuff like that anymore because no publisher will take that chance or developer because they'd like to be around for longer than, you know, the release of that game. Yeah, yeah it was definitely a very, very short window of time that the console was around, but it was amazing how much content it uh, put out in that short time. I mean, it looks like every issue at least covers one or two AAA games, you know what I mean? Um so, yeah, and I mean, I don't want to skip over the entirety of the Dreamcast's life, but I did want to ask uh, how all of you handled the, um, I guess, the Dreamcast's demise, both as fans and as journalists. Um, I did note that 
as early as issue four, Sega made an announcement of restructuring and stating that their future is not necessarily in consumer-based hardware. Um, at what point did you all start to really get the feel that the console was on its way out, or at least this was the last piece of hardware, consumer hardware you'd see from Sega? I don't know. I mean, honestly, I mean, Simon, what was your last issue? Because Simon left before the issue, the magazine actually closed. And yeah. Chris Charla took over for him, but. Issue six was Simon's final issue. They said they took down the, uh, what was it? You had uh, <laughs> the techno music was turned off. <laughs> the day yeah. the techno music died. <laughs> yeah, and they, the they said. Died. Yeah. It was a funny bit. He said the Union Jack has been lowered. The Moby posters have been torn down. The techno is officially off the turntable. And Simon's $1,200 Backsaver 2000 chair has gone with him into the great beyond known as Revolution. <laughs> Holy crap, so, that is yeah. so perfect. <laughs> yeah, that kind of is so perfect. Yeah, six was the, was the last issue. I think also that might have been, was that the Fight Club issue? That's when we did the big photo shoot with everyone covered in blood. It could oh. be. I'm seeing Power Stone 2 is one of the featured, uh, and another Shenmue article I'm seeing. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, right. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I didn't leave the magazine because I was like, oh, crap, this thing's going down. Get me out of here. Um, I've never been that prescient, unfortunately. But um, I, I left to help out a new launch called Revolution, which was a dance music magazine mm -hmm. uh, that was a complete fucking disaster, actually, from start to finish. <laughs> but um, so that was advised. But um, I think at that point, things were still going strong and looked great, I think. And, and that first year was just wonderful. I mean, it really was. I mean, I think the year 2000 was, was awesome. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and I think I was sort of long gone by the, time, by the time it started to feel like the wheels were coming off, Fran, I think. Yeah, yeah, because I came a little bit later, I think. Um, I can't remember where the rumors came from or how it, how it started coming about. I just knew that at some point they would... Like, I just knew. I just don't remember how I knew. But I think I it was because of, well, there was the foreshadowing, but do you remember, like, those weird events we started getting invited to? Um, <laughs> Name the weird events, because that pretty much covers my whole so career. So, I remember being at, <laughs> I remember being invited to a bunch of these, like, odd tech, tech events where they were talking about how the Dreamcast chip was going to be put in a set-top box, yeah. and a Dreamcast chip was going to be used in this, and... You know, there were some familiar faces from, you know, Sega of Japan that you knew and Sega of America. And it's like, why am I here? It's like, it's not game. They're like, oh, we just want to, we want to include you because you've been covering Sega. And I'm like, okay. And it was a bunch of games press that would go. And we're like, huh. And then well, so the, the, the weird thing was Game Center, um, in the middle of the Dreamcast Live, we actually got bought by, oh no, we bought, I think, I think we bought Ziff. So CNET bought Ziff. Uh, or not Ziff. Who's the Gamers.com? Or... I can't. Well, either way, uh, we were basically owned by the same company that owned GameSpot. And GameSpot's offices were in the Sega build. So, oh, wow. we, so we moved because we used to be on Townsend, kind of across from Pier 39, which, side story, was where they had like the Seaman event in the aquarium, which was super awkward. I saw pictures uh, of that. <laughs> that was awesome. We all went and it's like, what in the hell is going on? But sure, why not? Um, so then we moved to the Townsend building maybe about six months, six months or so before Sega packed it in. So we were in the same building as them. And, you know, I'd already had friends that worked there and, you know, everybody just started to have like a weird vibe. 
and you'd meet them for lunch and I'm like, how's things? And they're like, uh, fine. <laughs> and you just kind of got this vibe and then you got invited to those tech events. And if you guys remember, there was that leak, I think from, man, I think it was out of Australia that, um, it was 18 wheel pro American trucker and maybe Sega rally were coming to PS2. Man, I vaguely remember that. Do you that. remember that? Because that's when everybody started to get really mm. freaked out because it's like, why are you licensing this, this Sega IP to your competitor? It's like, oh, it's totally not true. But, <laughs> you know, you know, but then it's like, well, how come I hear Australian voices in the background? What's going on? They're like, it's fine. <laughs> um, and then I remember, um, I re it was so weird to be in the building that day when you took when they because I don't know how you guys found out but I think it was either the afternoon before whatever day they announced it was um you got a pre-brief call it's like hey are you free like at 4 30 and I was like sure and then you know it was a call with Charlie and I think it was Charlie and Peter it might have just been Charlie and Charlie's like, hey, we're going to make an announcement. Um, we're going third party. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and, you know, they kind of broke it down and everybody was like, oh, my God. I, I was like, being very, very, very sad, you know, because I think, you know, I may not be super crazy diehard, um, like as far as my knowledge base, because I've forgotten more than I remember these days as far as like game names and stuff like that but I was always you know from when I was younger I was always a Sega person you know I didn't have a Super Nintendo because I could only pick one system at the time and I had a Genesis nice and from there I had you know Sega CD I had a Saturn and everything like that and um so when when I heard that they were getting out of the hardware Oh man, did I hate the PS2 so much. <laughs> oh yeah. So you moved to Xbox, oh, right? <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is the PS2 ended up being one of my favorite systems of all time as well, you know, because there were so many good games on it. But at that time, mm -hmm. oh my God, I hated Sony and PS2 so much. I just, and I don't ever care about those things at all. Like I don't care about console wars. I don't, you know, I just like games, you mm -hmm. know? And, um, but at that time I felt so personal, Yeah, <laughs> you know, because I, because I loved the team so much. I, you know, from meeting so many of them and seeing so many of these amazing games, you know, and thinking like, oh crap, what's going to happen to Panzer? What's going to happen to mm -hmm. Jet Set? And what's going to happen to all these like franchises that I'd come to like absolutely love, you know, how, how is like Sony going to treat them being on their system and it felt like such a bitter like triumph for them to get these you know to get the the fruits of like Sega's labor you know by effectively killing off their system but then I regained sanity and it was okay but but yeah I remember it being really sad super sad at the time and it was really bad because so you know we get the news the news got out there it was pretty rough and of course there's going to be layoffs so there were and we were in the building when that happened. And you're like, oh, man. Ouch. And then even worse. And I still feel I, I don't feel that guilty about it. But, you know, whatever. Because, um, you know, in retrospect, yeah, I was kind of a vulture. But, of course, they had a fire sale. Right. So they had like this. Incredible... I was at that fire sale. <laughs> oh, <man. dude. laughs> and we were totally like, there. yeah, like, it was were like we you, both you, there at the time? Yeah, you and Evan, I think, came. 
Really? Because I mean, man, I still have some of that stuff. I still have this Jesus. like amazing. I found uh, an old bag from that. I'm like, why the fuck did I buy all this? <laughs> because I'm like, I mean, it's not going They were selling Dreamcast games for like two bucks. Yeah. Oh, and so I ended up with like 10 copies of like Pen Pen Triathlon or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. It was, it was nuts. But the, yeah, so I did feel kind of guilty because like a vulture. But at the same time, I was like, you can't turn down those prices. Yeah. And and where else am I going to get two Sega Bass Fishing controllers? Yeah, that's right. That's how I, I like I was going through my closet. I have this closet stuffed with stuff my husband hates me. You know, <laughs> because I have this closet full of freaking gaming crap and it just keeps getting fuller and fuller and he's tried to put a limit on it, but it just it won't be contained. <laughs> but I was going through these like Tupperware containers full of like stuff and I was like why do I have like nine Dreamcast controllers? And it's like, oh yeah, that's right, because they were selling them for like a buck during that fire like, sale. I have like a gay pride flag worth of EMU colors, and I'm just like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'm never gonna fill this up. But yeah, I, I think that. And then of course after that, you know, I was I, I went to Japan and I hit up Club Sega, mm. and I spiked the Japanese economy. I mean, it was I was so bad. I bought like big luggage. And I was worried about customs because, you know, anybody that's gone to Japan and like buys a bunch of stuff, it's like you never really want to declare it on customs because you're going to get nailed. So you always try and keep it on the low. And I just remember being completely freaked out because I'd bought this enormous suitcase. And of course, when I went to Japan, I fucking bought every single Samba de Amigos that I could find because that was like <laughs> gold. And like my fucking suitcase sounded like a maraca because I had like four of them in there. And I'm just like, what please, did you God. Do with Four of them. Like, I gave to some friends and I have two in storage just in case the apocalypse hits. And I, <laughs> and yeah, I need, and you uh, need to play Samba de Amiga to ward off the <laughs> <laughs> I got to keep in shape somehow. But yeah, it's like, I think that there was, um, there was so much cool stuff that they did that um, that's why it was personal for a lot of people because they really were the people's developer, especially towards the end because they had such goodwill behind them because everybody wanted to see them do well. Mm -hmm. And... It was, it was, they were the canary in the gas mine because you saw that the core wasn't enough to sustain a platform anymore. Because everybody hated Sony for a long time, even before the Dreamcast launch. They wanted Sega to kick it to them hard. Mm -hmm. And we, if you remember like the old marketing stuff that was fantastic, like when Sega would do sort of the, the thumbing their nose at Sony with the redheaded kid in the ad. Yeah. Um, all that stuff. You wanted that energy. You wanted Sega to have their swagger back, even when they were doing like the really sad Saturn commercials with Knights versus PS One, and it's like, no, dude, just really, just let it go. <laughs> but um, you know, in the end, they when the Dreamcast died, it was like the death knell of the core as like the main focus because what was obvious when Sony came in was they had bigger sites. They really wanted mainstream, and there wasn't anything really wrong with that because if that if that change hadn't happened i don't think any of us would still have been employed for as long as we were after because games had to expand unfortunately sega had to be a casualty and i still wish somehow they'd been able to keep doing hardware because there's something about their approach you've never seen anybody do again because it was a a very smart mix of creativity and kind of artistry in a lot of ways and, and some business, right? They were smart yeah. about some things, not all. Um, and you don't see that anymore because people are either all in. Like right now, crazy as it sounds, Sony's the closest. Because, you I know, still you disagree with you on there. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because if you look at stuff like Journey and if you look at stuff like um, 
heavy rain and like the weird artsy stuff or even rain which is the psn game that's coming out soon you don't necessarily see people taking those kinds of risks from a major publisher the indie like all that stuff's moved to indie which is great um but it's not as contained anymore right because it's pc it's mac it's console sometimes it's mobile um but sega really was like a hub for a lot of that really cool stuff happening at that time it's changed a lot since but um you know it's it, they really were kind of like a an earmark for everything changing when yeah. you know for better or for worse i think from a hardware hardware perspective nintendo are close to dreamcast now in some ways they the feel but I, I, t- I agree with you with, with Sony, and I think the PS4, you know, is going to be, it's going to, it's going to feel that the fre- there's something fresh about the PS4. It feels like, don't say it's a Dreamcast. Don't curse it. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of feels. It feels like it's made by people who care again. Yeah. And, and you know, passionate people um, who are listening to 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 the gamers, but also trying to plan for the future. You know, and I think it's um. It doesn't somehow the PS4 doesn't feel as corporate, which is amazing considering like where it's brand. coming from. Yeah, exactly. Which is amazing considering it's you know one of the biggest corporations in the world at one point. But you know, like Fran said, when the Dreamcast went down, there was kind of like you know, damn the PS2. I mean, I remember thinking that the PS2 was this soulless slab of plastic, you know, <laughs> com- com- compared to the you know the sort of friendly looking, well thought out um, you know design of. Uh, of the Dreamcast. I mean, the controllers on the Dreamcast were amazing. The mm-hmm. VM thing was amazing. You know, it was all, it was it was great. It just had these fatal flaws. And I think a DVD player was one of them, by the way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, not having a DVD player, you know, dolt. Uh, but, you know, I think if it, it, it was, it kind of feels like that now. I feel like, you know, Nintendo have it with hardware a bit, you know, now, which is that their stuff feels friendly and interesting. Uh, and and yeah, it's you know the Wii U is flopping like the Dreamcast, so maybe you know there's there's more similarities there than we like to admit. <laughs> yeah. Right now, uh, but from a software perspective, um, Ricardo, I think you I think it's spot on. You know that that you know that, that Sony feel like they just kind of um, they get game game fans. You know, it's like we've gone back to that era before it all went. Hey, everything has to be mainstream. You know. Until none of that sells, at which point we're back on track. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, Rick- oh, sorry. Uh, I was going to ask a question, if that's all right. Yeah. Um, Ricardo said that you guys went to a meeting with the, the when they introduced the chips for the TVs and all these other ideas they had. Um, the Dreamcast also had a lot of unreleased like hardware. Like uh, there was the MP3 VMU. Do you guys remember that? MP3 oh, VMU. God, that's right. <laughs> Do you remember the zip drive? The zip drive. Yeah, they had the zip drive. Do you guys like ever get hands on with this stuff, or was it just like no no press got hands on CES was when you CES became a thing that you had to go to when you covered consoles because the zip drive and the mp3 player kind of fell outside the tradition like they weren't going to show that stuff at E3 because people weren't going to give them the time of day mm. so they would have to take that stuff to CES so i remember um being told by Sega you should you should go to CES this year and i'm like why in the hell do i want to do that and like we've got some stuff so like i went and they had they had the zip drive which was working. Oh wow! Yeah, I mean they were streaming a movie off, well, an anime off of it, and it looked pretty okay. I mean, Simon, I think that was I think that was going to be the that was going to be the we don't need a DVD player, we have zip drives kind of a thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> by the way, 
by the way, your 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 ability to remember things from back then is I, I feel like Jason Bourne right now. <laughs> <laughs> Do not ask me what happened earlier today or last week, but I remember Dreamcast fine. Yeah, that's that's what Francesca told me. She said you know your stuff, so <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't. I actually don't remember. I remember the zip. I remember the zip drive, and I remember thinking, "What?" And uh, I vaguely remember. I remember somebody um, plugging headphones into a VMU mm-hmm. and listening to music. So that must have happened too. But I don't actually remember <laughs> using it and walking around with it. Um, that, I don't think that ever came out though. So no. you're not- yeah, it was unreleased. Yeah, I remember somebody had one. Uh, or had or had a go on one at some point, but I don't remember um, having a go on one myself, so I don't actually remember it. But um, yeah, that's what I mean. It was so there was they just it's just like they kind of they just kept thinking of, of cool ideas and then they sort of did them, and but with no market research whatsoever. To think about how many peripherals came out for the damn thing. Yeah, like I think that was the last platform where everybody went batshit crazy. Because right now we've got what? We've got fighting game controllers, which are kind of ubiquitous for people that are into that. And you've got racing wheels. And you've got the Kinect and the, and the Move. But that's about it, right? Yeah. Dreamcast. Well, then we yeah. had those like, guitar controls everybody was into for a oh, while. You know, and the rock band stuff, sure. Yeah, but Dreamcast, definitely. I remember my setup. It was the keyboard, the mouse. I believe oh. I imported a DreamEye. I couldn't use it, but I liked the look of it. I have mine. Uh, yes, it's it's you know um, there was the twin sticks, the maracas, the microphone, and I mean the funny thing is is that with all of these things they maybe were usable with a couple games at most. It was the arcade thing in them. They didn't they didn't you know to Simon's point, not a lot of market research was done. It's like, well, what else could we do with the virtual on twin sticks? <laughs> it's just like fuck it, just bring them out. We'll, we'll be fine. To a- they kept answering questions that no one was asking, but I but I think the um, <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah. That's totally true. Yeah. But they offered they but they answered them so definitively and, and and wonderfully that you kind of forgave them for it. But the, I remember the arcade stick being absolutely amazing, and to this day, being maybe if not the best, one of the best arcade sticks ever, wasn't Definitely. it? Yeah, Agreed. people actually were trying to get uh, PlayStation Two adapters so they could use it on that. Right. Oh yeah, like and you see anytime. Sega or some, you know, some of those fun gray market people in Japan are like, it's a Dreamcast control, it's a it's a Saturn controller for your PS2. Everybody like that shit spikes. Yeah, I mean, they were really good about their controllers. I mean, that's yeah. like, the, well, it, oddly enough, the 3D controller felt pretty good, which by all by all rights had no business feeling as good as it did. <laughs> we were joking, like I was talking to Ricardo the other day. We were joking about. Um, Bleemcast. I mean, it's not peripheral, but we were talking about that. We're like, how did they ever get away with that? Yes. Well, punchline: they didn't. They're all dead now. No, I (laughs) I know. I mean, they're gone now. But I mean, it's just amazing that anyone even tried it, you know? And that Sega was kind of like, yeah, we're gonna look away, and you can do whatever you want, you know. Meanwhile, Sony was fighting tooth and nail, but. (laughs) But yeah, it's it's amazing how many weird, quirky things came out for Dreamcast, like whether it was games, whether it was peripherals and stuff. And but it is exactly like Simon said. It's like no market research. You mm-hmm. just went, fuck it, try it, you know, and I, see if it works. I'm curious if you any of you remember the Swatch Watch. I always read about it, but it was a Swatch Watch that connected to a VMU. You wrote about it a couple of times in the issues. Um and you could no, beam information. Not- 
That was yes. Japan only, right? It, I don't yeah. think it ever released. If it did, I would have bought it on eBay. <laughs> I swear to God, if I go through, I swear if I go through, I, I know the exact drawer and the exact dresser. I think I have something like that. So I remember, I don't think it was that one, but I know I have a Sonics watch somewhere that someone in Japan sent to me. And I come across it. (laughs) I don't remember. I have to find it because every once in a while I'll come across and go, oh shit, I can't believe I still have this, you know? (laughs) And oh no, see now tonight I'm going to have to go do that. I'm going to have to try and find that thing because I know I I always tell myself I put it somewhere safe, Mm. you know? And but it's so safe that I only come across it every five years. You know, God, everybody watch the news for the woman dead under Sega Bass Fishing Controller story. <laughs> oh my God, it, it was. Yeah, it makes make, it does make me a bit misty eyed talking about this stuff because I kind of when I look back, I, I really do. Yes, yes, they answered these you know these questions that nobody was asked, but you know asked, but. In a way, I mean, it was it was kind of a five hundred million dollar love letter to gaming. Mm-hmm. I mean, in some ways, and you know, I wonder, I kind of wonder if we'll ever see the like of it again, really, in that respect. Yeah. Well, I it, think you know one of the things, and I mean, and this is probably me being you know, like generalizing and stuff, but I love the fact that back then they just made whatever the hell they wanted. You know, they didn't because the whole market research and like consumer feedback stuff was much more limited back then they kind of just had to just go for it if someone had an inspiration on one of the teams or if they said we need to plug this hole in our inventory or something they just did it they didn't even check with nobody they just (laughs) went and did it and where nowadays everything is market research to death and everything's focus group tested and everything i mean there's so much like does the community want this we need to survey we need to do all these different you know it's Market Poochie research. from The Simpsons every day. Yes. And I mean, but at the same time, you know, there's good stuff that comes out of that because you get a real, like, a real kind of sense for what real gamers do. But back then it was just like, it was kind of like that was their artistic intent. They didn't really care. They just did it and you either liked it or you did And most people just loved it, you know. But um, but nowadays it's slightly different because they follow market trends now. Whereas before it was like, screw it, we're just doing what we want to do. And if people like it, great. Because cause they were sort of in touch with whatever the trend was at the time. Mm-hmm. Because they were also leading it. You know, and I don't know if I'm making any sense. But I mean, like... No, you totally it are. Was, I mean... Yeah. The, it's impossible to do pleasant surprises if you're completely Excel guided, right? Yeah. And every once in a while, someone's like, you know what? Let's make a fucking talking fish game. Let's see what happens. <laughs> Admittedly, that did not plug a hole. No. But you saw, like, from that, you see where some of the, you know, where you see some elements of that in other games that came down the line. And even if yeah. they're not very blatant or obvious, it did inspire people you know, in some way, whether it's in technology or whether it's in the game design or any, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like the uh, Connect Milo. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me, I remember when people were, they're like, oh, it's like a kid, but it's like Seaman, but it's creepier than Seaman. <laughs> you can't Nothing get creepier, can be creepier than, than Seaman. That's true. That's true. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. If you, ha- if you hook Connect up to Seaman, that, that would be the, that would be the I've been thing. surprised some of that stuff hasn't come back because I know the, Sega was so ahead of the ahead of the curve on some of that shit, where it's like te- the technology just couldn't support it. But now, 
we would have the most fucked up Seaman you've ever seen in your life. Yeah. They'll well, never say never. There's a 3DS Seaman, yeah. apparently, uh, rumored. I know, but, you know, it's not the same as having it stare at you on your TV. That's I know. No, it's in your pocket. <laughs> well, I just always think, why don't they just freaking release Typing of the Dead on Steam? You know, it's just yeah. like, you've got a keyboard right there. Screw you know? Mavis Beacon. Zombies will teach America how to type. <laughs> I, I mean, just sell it for like 10 bucks. You know, it's just like they would make a killing because it's so easy and you have everything at your disposal. You don't have to go and buy a keyboard for it. So, I mean, it just seems sort of like a lot of the stuff that they're doing seems like such a shoe in now that it would be easy to do. So it's always, it always like, Oh, Sega, why don't you do these things? <laughs> yeah, they, like the games they release, like the really top shelf stuff. It's, you see the, the ripples of that continue and it's been fantastic. Cause I remember when I was interviewing the doctors on the original mass effect and I'm like, you know, crazy question. Did you guys ever play skies of Arcadia? And they're like, yeah, this t- Skies of Arcadia is one of our inspirations, and I'm like, fuck yeah. Wow. <laughs> no, I know. That's like, that's, I mean, that's the thing is like with those guys too. I mean, I had the same conversation with them that space exploration was really, a lot of it was kind of inspired by Skies of Arcadia and exploration, the sky exploration in that. And I remember, was it Psychonauts? When Psychonauts came out, like I remember talking, I went and had a demo with that with Tim Schafer, where there was something in that game, I can't remember what it was, but it would that was a common bond too with Skies of Arcadia. And you're just like, wow. it really did like affect people. And maybe not, um, you don't see games come out that are exactly like this stuff, but I mean, it did inspire certain game designers and developers in ways that you might not be able to tell now. And so, I mean, and because there was such an, an imagination and creativity, like kind of this like spirited sort of, game design back then that and it really affected a very specific generation of designers Mm -hmm. you know so it's really cool to see that it's weird when you talk to some of these um different like developers and stuff about it and it's like awesome you know you have this common language because you both know this stuff and love this stuff it almost always goes back to dreamcast it seems for right now yeah which i think is i I think it's as it should be because that is I always had this joke, because like Fran, I took the Dreamcast going down really hard, and uh, a friend of mine, Eric, which is, you know that stuff you do back when you're younger? It's like, what was I doing with my life? We would talk for hours just about this kind of bullshit, and it's like, there could have been better things that we were doing. Um, but we just talked about how, <laughs> like, Sega's going to get its revenge. And it did, because the ports never really worked the way they should on the other platforms. Mm-hmm. And... The, the ideas and, and all that kind of stuff that, that they had, they didn't, seem to, they didn't seem to take flight the way they did on the other platforms because that kind of lightning in a bottle of the hardware, the developers, everything being exclusive, it was a perfect storm that you're not going to get again. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was ulti- that's, that's Sega's revenge from the grave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well... Um, I, I guess the final roundtable discussion question really has been covered, uh, how, how you think the Dreamcast impact, impacted modern gaming. Um, but do, you have any, do any of you have anything else to add, maybe hardware-wise, um, online think, play, things like I, that? Yeah, I mean, I feel like the modem, and I don't know, well, I know Fran got it because we were both playing PSO at the time, but the broadband adapter? Oh, wow. Who the fuck does that? I need that. You know what I'm saying? It's like, <laughs> Who the fuck does that back then, <laughs> if you think about it? Because, I mean, it was crazy enough that we were getting really good 
you know, really good ping and low latency on, you know, football games. And even Quake was playable, mostly. Um, although, you know, in retrospect, letting keyboard, and, mouse and keyboard and controller players mix was maybe not a good idea. Um, but, you know, I think Still that there was... Still isn't a good idea. Still <laughs> isn't a good idea. <laughs> but, yeah, I think that what they did by sort of like... They don't get enough credit for that because they tried it. I mean, admittedly, you had like... To take it way back, if you guys remember X-Band for like the four games it supported. Mm-hmm. And it was awesome. But, you know, that was it was some like, you know, smoke and mirrors and jazz hands to make it all go. But like Sega made a commitment to online online gameplay, not just with the peripheral they included, but the sports games, which were absolutely fucking clutch, were great. And I don't think you can talk about Dreamcast and not talk about PSL because holy shit. Yeah. Like so many hours of my life got pissed away with that. And what's nuts to me, it's like it's so fucking small. Because I went back and I played it a couple of years ago, and I'm like, really? Yeah. It's like, why am I going through? The-? It's like it is like the fucking definition of madness, right? Is constantly repeating the same thing and hoping for a different outcome. It's like I gotta get that fucking that elite drop. Come on, kill dragon <laughs> one more time. But you know, I know Fran's got some stuff to say because we played that shit every fucking night forever. Well, I met so many people like yeah. at the time playing PSO. I remember I used to play with James Milky. I used yep. to play with like um Anthony Chow. Yeah, and like all these people at the time who were also fellow like reviewers and games journalists and stuff and everyone would get together for freaking PSO, you know, and we'd all like, you know, that cheesy with it's time to slay the dragon. I mean, it seriously was that, you know, (laughs) it was time to slay the dragon every freaking night, you know? And, um, and I mean, those are just some of my favorite memories. And the other stuff was meeting Mizuguchi. Yeah. Like I absolutely totally respect that guy. I mean, such a incredibly nice guy down to earth, but also, Super smart and super creative. I mean, I think, you know, Simon would know more. Do you have a history, Simon, with Res? Like, I've heard rumors <laughs> about this, and I always wanted to ask you, did you actually, I don't know if you want to out this, but, like, did you actually name that game or suggest the name for that game? Yeah, I named it. No. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us the freaking story. Don't just say yeah. <laughs> were you the were you the mocap for the wireframe dude too? That's right. That was me was floating through space. Um, you know. So you know what? Um, I went over there with um, some some buddies from uh, Edge, and um, we went to Japan, and um, we knew Mizuguchi from Edge, so we were already friends with him. Uh, and in fact, we went to Burning Man with him um, in '99. <laughs> And I have an abiding memory of um, of one one night wondering where he'd got to and seeing these tiny little flashing lights coming towards me on the plier out of the dark. And uh, and as he walked up to me, I was like, oh, my God, it's Tetsuya. And he had these like little lights on his shoes. And every time he walked, they would flash. Anyway, that's just a by the by. But, but, but he was... <laughs> He he was he was really into dance music. Obviously, I mean you can tell from his from his from his work, you know, um, that he's a big fan of electronic music. And and so we went to Burning Man with him. We'd go clubbing with him in in Japan. And one night um, we we went to meet him before we went out. Um, actually, at uh, at UGA as it was then, and uh, he showed me this new game. And he showed myself and Jason Brooks, who was the ex editor in chief of Edge. Uh, he showed us this new game. 
And the music that was playing what, uh, for the level he showed us was a track by Underworld called Res. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said, I hope to get the license for this, but it's tricky. I'm trying. But I'm not sure if I can get the license for this track. And this track, Res by Underworld, is a phenomenal kind of dance anthem, right? I mean, it's a kind of a, it's kind of a seminal dance anthem in a, in a lot of ways, kind of like Moby's Go. And, um, and we were sitting there, and, and, and I said, do you have a name for the game yet? And he's like, no. And I'm like, why don't you call it Res with a Z, like D-Res, like Resolution, Resed Up, like Tron, like, you know, kind of all of these things. And, and he said, oh, I really like that. Um, yeah, I really like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And uh, I was like, you could call it Res, man. That's a great idea. That'd be great. That'd be so cool. It's our favorite track, and you know, and if you can get the sound, if you can get the license for this track, that would be amazing. You know, it would just be my head would come off when I'm playing this game. You know, and um, yeah, and he didn't get the license unfortunately for the for the track from uh, from Underworld, but he did keep the name Res, um, which was cool. So uh, I'm somewhere in the credits, I think, somewhere. But that's my little that's my little claim to fame. Yeah, right. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a yeah. great claim to fame, though, you know, because that's a total cred by cred. It's a cred. Star. That's true. It gets me some cred points, which I get a T-shirt made. It's not real unless it's on a T-shirt. That's true. <laughs> yeah. it's, I desperately need those cred points, so I'll take them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You'll get cred points with forty-year-old dudes who never drink. Right. That's right. Now I have Ricardo have... named Speed Doubles. So... Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> we don't get many from that. <laughs> But yeah, so but that yeah cool. that's that's is that like kind of what because I mean I'm just thinking like you know meeting Mizuguchi and like getting to know him, and also meeting uh, Reiko Kadama. Which, oh God, my favorite amazing person ever for yeah. Skies of Arcadia and stuff, and getting her to sign my copy of Skies, which is the dorkiest thing ever. But <laughs> it's freaking Reiko Kadama. I mean that, you know, behind she she did Fantasy Star, you know, and Fantasy Star Two and. And everything, and you're just like, it's just amazing, like meeting these people and finding out that they're just down to earth, you know, really cool people. So nice, yeah, just so nice, mm -hmm. just nice people. And uh, Kenji Ino, me, I, 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 he was a good friend of uh, of, of Mizuguchi, as you know. And uh, I remember that same trip, we we went over um, to was it Warp? What was his company called? Warp. It was Warp. Yeah, Warp. yeah. 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 Such uh, a great guy. Wow. Did you ever go to his to to Warp's like studio? Did you ever? Yeah. So you saw the little path with the plants and where they would sit around that little... Yeah. Yeah, it was just so creative and amazing. And you just got the impression that these were the sort of quietest, nicest, most creative people. And it was just this very gentle kind of vibe, uh, but very creative. It was... It was so artists. Unique. I mean, that was exactly. yeah. That was the thing, right? So there's this, you know, Simpsons, right? Disco Stew doesn't advertise. Well, there's something about like that. That is my motto, so <laughs> <laughs> that cr that specific crowd of developers, um, like what Simon said, incredibly soft-spoken, really nice, genuine people, mm -hmm. and just and and then they would like you'd have a nice dinner, you'd go meet them for drinks or whatever. And it's like, oh, I want to show you something, and then you would fucking shit your pants. And you're like, yeah. you did this, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, you like it. And it's like, oh my god. Yeah, you know, it's like that was the thing that I I love the most about that whole thing because Kenji, I don't know if you guys, I'm sure you guys know he passed. That was um, yeah, that was sad. I mean, he was he was great. I mean, prickly, but I mean, all creative people are right. But he like he was a really awesome, genuine person. Um, 
one of my crazy um, favorites of the Dreamcast was D2, specifically because of that ending. Um, the game itself I was a little... I still don't understand why you're so apeshit over that ending, but I'll I... let you have it. I will let you have it. I'm going to allow this. There is just something about that ending and the timing of it, because it was... Um, I want to say, like, you play That thing came out in 99, I think. But either way, I just remember it was like... You know, it had a message. It was very kind of artistic and surreal message, but it had one. Um, and it was just something at, you know, that time in your life, because games are like music, right? If you listen to a song that you were, you know, that you heard when you were going through something, even now you'll remember it. And depending on where you are in your life, if you are playing a game or having an experience with a game and you come back to it, it'll take you back. And there I was don't just... remember. I, I I don't remember the ending of. Do, do you mean the clock thing? The clock and the montage of of people and right. just the, I think it was like ten minutes of just that, and it was a lot of silence and piano music because right. you know why not? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it was fantastic, and I just remember just being so moved by it, and I I I couldn't re- I couldn't think of why for a long time, and then. You know, it's like a good book, right? Sometimes you have to go back and examine it. And I've played the game a couple times and, you know, that kind of stuff. It, in some ways, it's, it's kind of expected these days in games because people talk about Last of Us and Bioshock and people kind of go in expecting for, to get some kind of emotional or visceral experience out of a game. Mm. Uh, but back then, we kind of didn't. So anytime you got one, it was kind of shocking. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. Very true. I was not real wrapped up in Mario and Peach's struggle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, okay, I'm done. Woo, moving on. <laughs> but yeah, there was, there was a lot of great stuff. And those teams, uh, they were just all cool to hang out with, you know? And it was, mm. and the, the, the great thing was everybody was very low key, as Simon said. And you didn't feel kind of like the weird pressure. There was never any agenda there if you wound up becoming friends with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but nowadays, um, more and more, there's a lot more calculation behind relationships sometimes when the press gets to be, gets to be friendly with, with some developers because you're kind of a means to an end. Mm-hmm. And I do sort of feel bad for kind of like the new kids coming up because... I don't think you can have, you can probably on the indie side, but as you know, the bigger you get, I think it's a little harder to have kind of like still be genuinely friendly with people and not get pressured or feel weird about certain things, Um, which is a shame because those guys were great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It didn't feel like that. They they didn't make it feel as if they were the, top guys who were in charge of, of, of worldwide brands, which is how you feel now. You feel like you're, oh, yeah. you're dealing you're dealing with a brand, not a person sometimes now, I would say. And and these guys, you know, Kenji Ino, you know, Tetsuya Mizuguchi and, and a whole host of others um, were really, they paved the way for the indie scene now, I think, in some ways. Like, you know, I mean, you can go Completely. way back as well if you want for that, like the 80s. But, but you know, really these guys... Um, <laughs> You know, they, they came out like, you know, Tetsuya Mizuguchi came out of Sega, right? And formed his own studio that was sort of second party. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so he went kind of indie a little bit and, you know, and, and did his own thing. And commercially, maybe, you know, ultimately, of course, it didn't work out too great, you know, but it was, 
good enough, you know, but um, but it wasn't about uh, going out there and, you know, creating the next Call of Duty type game. It was about um, it was about what do I want to do? Tetsuya Mizuguchi. What am I into personally? You know, what is my artistic kind of drive, you know, inspiration tell me I should be doing right now mm-hmm. rather than, you know, what's the next big commercial hit? Uh, well, you was, see it, that. Yeah. I'm sorry. You see that with Child of Eden, you know, um, and, you know, I I don't know how 100 percent he was involved with the creation of that game. I think he was fairly involved with it. But, you know, you see it within that where it's like he's incapable of making a game that isn't at least, a, you know, somehow tied to, you know, personal expression or, you know, authentic. his. It's got to yeah. be something authentic. Yeah, and I mean, you don't get that very much. You get, you know, like like we've all said nine million times, you know, you do get that now. And I think that's why everyone is so excited about, you know, indie games, you know, because you do see glimpses of that a lot, you know, whether it's personal expression or whether it's experimenting with form or experimenting with um, different kind of design, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and, you know, it just seems to be coming kind of full circle from that era. And even though all of those studios were in-house to some degree, you know, um, that spirit, you can see it now finally kind of coming, coming full circle with like these indie games, you know? And so it's, it's kind of like a cool renaissance right now for that, even though, you know, very different messages, very different kind of forms of expression, you know, but there's that variety and there's that kind of that passion for this games as like, kind of a, a tool for doing new things and trying new things, you know, that we haven't seen necessarily a lot of or as much of over the past maybe eight or nine years, yeah. you know, so. Yeah, it's, per, it's you know, the games, uh, you know, uh, it's legitimate now to think of it. To, it's not ridiculous to go to, you know, to go to go to the press and say, yeah, this this game is is, is about personal expression for me. I mean, you would have been, you know, kind of laughed at a bit, I think, particularly by, you know, big companies like EA, you know, or, or Activision you know, five years ago, even. Mm-hmm. Saying that, you know, it's about your personal expression. No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it depends on what you're doing. And if, if you're just like, if it's just a military shooter, then be like, man, that is some fucked up personal expression. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, then express that? yourself for a lot of money for us. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, you might <laughs> You might be passionate about it, but it's not about your personal experience. You know, you're not you're not you're not you know looking at your life in some way and trying to and trying to express something personal. You're you're making a great game, no doubt, but you know, are are you really? Is it coming from a place of sort of authentic personal expression? And that's what's so exciting about the indie um, sort of revolution that's going on at the moment, and what was so exciting about those guys in Japan back then, and and others too. You know, and you know, so it's um. It's had an amazing legacy, I think, the Dreamcast, really. And the more we talk about it, the more I'm kind of thinking, wow, yeah. You know, it was a long time ago, but there are echoes. Yeah. It's a sign of a good classic, right? Yeah. 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 Where it can kind of, it still resonates now. You know, even if some of the games probably don't, like if you actually played them now. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because no, of the no. way they look and because they're tied to technology. But... You know, just just what they were trying to do and, and everything. And I mean, granted, not all of the games were artistic or masterpieces, i.e. look at the entire, you know, look at some of the games in the magazine. You're like, wow, I forgot about that game. Like, what was what was the Rockstar game? The, the, Wild the, Metal Country? 
Was that no? Was it called Wild Metal Country? Really? Sounds right. Yeah, Wild Metal. <laughs> so Rockstar did GTA Two. So Dreamcast mm-hmm. owners, we missed out by one. And um, there, there was Wild Metal, and they did one other one, didn't they? I think Rockstar only did like two or three games. Yeah, mm-hmm. I just remember. I think it was Wild Metal. That was the one. But you see like that, and you're like, well, okay, maybe that's not like from this golden era of gaming. But I mean. You know, I mean, it's it's just I think about like Jet Set Radio or Jet Grind Radio, whatever you want to call it. But mm-hmm. um, and you listen to like I remember when it when it came out again on um, like XBLA and PSN oh, and everything gosh. just recently. <laughs> like you watch the but you watch that behind the scenes footage and you just get so nostalgic. Yeah. I mean, here's these guys talking about like what their what their directive was from Sega management was like. We just want to try something new, you know. What What do you have? And they're like, "Well, we started thinking about street culture at the time and how it mixed with music and how there were all these garage, like garage type bands on the street." And you're just like, "Who does that? You know, I mean, who does that anymore? You know, that's crazy. I mean, how many, how many, you know, game developers that do you know? Like, especially of the past, like maybe over the past, like." five years outside of like the major ones, like the big studio ones where they're like, yeah, I went out on the street. It really has to do about street culture that doesn't turn into a hoverboarding game. (laughs) Or don't forget urban fighter street culture. Oh God. Yeah. And I think that that was, Oh, that was a sad time. Was that? And you just reminded me of like Final Fight Streetwise, that whole era of like (laughs) Japanese developers trying to find themselves within like trying to, kind of start following like western gaming trends <laughs> we won't talk about that no um, it's like the, my random sidebar is just in a lot of ways the dreamcast might have been one of the times when the japanese development community got rattled and it did lead us into the dark times of final fight streetwise crime life and something <laughs> beat down not forget beat oh, down. that's right it was beat down and there were so many other ones well that yeah. that wasn't just japanese developers there were there were, there, it was an international thing. True. <laughs> Everybody yeah, like, was just like, GTA, that's doing really well. We must, people just must really like going around shooting people. So, yeah. Anyways. It, it, it got us into that, that sad time. Because, you know, there's a lot of people that bag on Japanese development. But at the same time, there would be no game industry if it wasn't for Japanese game development right now. Yeah. Because they, they brought it back with the NES. And Sega took it into like a really great weird space. Like, maybe not a commercial space, because everybody was broke, but um, they were like, you know, if, you, if you're a writer, you're an artist, there are these things called prompts. So it's like, hey, we're going to, you know, like, so writing exercises are done with prompts, right? So here's a theme, here's a whatever. So much of Sega's catalog is a prompt of some kind for a lot of these guys that are making games now, where it's like you got inspired by it, or it made you think about something that's completely unrelated and, you know, so there is value in Japanese game development. It always kind of annoys the hell out of me when people just try and dismiss it. It's like, well, they're freaking out right now because the industry's changing. And I, I still argue that they just lost their nerve. And so they're never going to find it by trying to copy what everybody else is doing. It has to be authentic. It has to be, it has to resonate true to them because, you know, a, you know, a Japanese developer trying to do a full-on GTA game when they have... No, no even real cultural experience with the, that kind of violence and that kind of tone. Mm-hmm. It's not going to go well. We had that. It didn't work. There was just a lot of swearing, and it was awkward. Well, <laughs> no, I mean, I, Ch- Child of Eden, right, was a flop, right? Yeah. And, Such a good game, though, but, like but, in my opinion. I, I liked it. 
But if that, yeah, had, out, if that had come out for $20 as a download right off out of the gate, you know, that would, it would have done so much better. And I think that if you look at Japan right now and, you know, I mean, James Milky, right? I mean, he's, he's got, he had Bit Summit last year. He's having another one, I think, this year, um, yeah. you know, which is a summit for, for independent gaming there. And he really feels, I know, that, that there's a sort of revitalization going on there because of indie gaming. And it's going to start bearing fruit. And I think people like, you know, Mizuguchi are going to be able to find their place there because it, it's been somewhat uncomfortable in the AAA world uh, for them, you know, uh, you know, I mean, in terms of, you know, financially. Uh, but I think the indie, the indie direct download world uh, is so perfectly suited for that way of thinking. Uh, you know, and it's it's kind of time, you know. It answers that, oh, yeah. that question of scale that's been, I mm. think, at the heart of the problems, right? Mm. Because, yeah, it's like everybody loved Child of Eden. They probably could have made it for a little cheaper and maybe not had it look as amazing as it did, although that would have sucked, I think, because I love that game. But at the same time, it's it's about picking the right scale for your idea and and sort of doing the best you can there. Because right now, traditional games, which you're currently struggling, right, Everything can't be a Call of Duty, but that's what they want. Right. And everybody gets pissed off when it's like, well, we spent $40 billion on this. It's got to work. It's like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> right. Well, um, I have, uh, before we end the show, I have some listener questions. I just wanted to run by uh, some of you. Um, are, you have... sure you, are you sure you want to ask him? We tend to go on and on. <laughs> Don't <laughs> worry. like midnight before we finish it <laughs> i think most of these are going to be you guys going i honestly don't remember that time i'm sorry uh especially this first one this is from david of sonic retro um this one's for francesca uh when sonic adventure 2 was announced did sega let you in on the ground floor to write up your previews for the game or were they very secretive forcing you to look towards other sources that gave information that might end up being false. And I think he's asking this because, and you know, this is, this is a shot in the dark, but you, in your preview, you talked about Sonic being on a submarine and he had to make a choice of either piloting the submarine or escaping it. And oh my in the final game, there was never a moment where Sonic was in a submarine being like, I gotta, I gotta pilot this thing or escape. Are you, oh was it the God. helicopter? You no. Like, that's odd because, I mean, I don't know where I would have gotten that information other than, like, from a preview or a demo or, you know, information from Sega. I even you have, know, a I have image he sent. <laughs> oh, my God. Let me look. Oop, friends on blast. It's, um, it's the fourth, the fourth uh, column there. Sonic will partake in some aquatic shenanigans in which he'll learn to control a submarine or find his way out if he gets trapped. Food for thought, indeed. <laughs> wow. Like okay. I, so. What did... I don't even know. Like, I honestly don't remember. But, I mean, like I said, I I don't think I would have just pulled out out of thin air. Mm. You know? So, either I saw it in action. That's... Or... Yeah, that's... Or, like, and they got cut out of the final version. Or maybe it was just a prototype at the time. Or maybe it was just false information from a weird source. But I don't think we would have used, like, a non-official source, you mm. know what I mean, to get the information for that. Because I don't even think it – I think I would have couched it as a rumor at the time if it was just a rumor, you know. Okay. So I have no idea. I okay. mean, I, 
<laughs> okay, yeah, the, the Sonic Retro guys, they're all about digging through game files, finding out all these information. So when they, I'm sure when they read that, you probably made their um, Wikipedia entry of the submarine. And I'm sure there's some guys out there right now still searching the code for submarines. Oh, God. So now I feel so bad. You know, it's like, what did I get? That? I'm going to have to start thinking about that now, though. So, yeah, the, the, sea, the mystery of the submarine. Um, this one's actually from me. For um, you as well, uh, using the ODCM review scale, I was just wondering what would you give PSO because I know it was promised to have a review in issue thirteen. It never happened, and I'm pretty sure I asked you, and you said you never wrote the review in full. No, I never wrote the review in full. But I think if I were to score it, I don't know, and it's hard for me to separate it now from nostalgia and from like after however many years. Because I mean, I even went to go play it on. GameCube after that. We spent so many hours on GameCube playing um, playing it, but I think, I'm trying to remember what games I gave a 10 to. I gave a 10 to Code Veronica. Okay. And I think there was, a, I didn't do it, but when I think maybe Evan or somebody else on the staff um, gave a 10 to one of the fighting games, and I wish I could remember what it was, but it was pretty rare that we would have given a 10, but I think I would have given PSO a 10 at the time. Nice. Yeah, yeah Shenmue Just because I said... Oh, that's right. Shenmue was the other... Oh, man, I was handing them out like candy then. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, I mean, I spent so much time with that game and had so much fun with it, and maybe it's a totally personal thing, but I don't remember there being anything particularly... Like, it wasn't a perfect game, obviously, oh. like, as evidenced by Ricardo talking about how basically it's just, like, three rooms in a tube. Yeah. <laughs> and a dragon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and a dragon. But, I mean, like... You know, it's not a perfect game, but I remember enjoying it so much, and like, and it's such, like, such a great memory now. That right. game, so nice. And version two, I'm assuming it would get like an eleven out of ten. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. Excellent. Um, um, you want me to ask the the one of the questions? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Um, CRT gamer uh, at from Racket Boy asks, uh, how did the demo disc content, including exclusives like Toy Commanders uh, Christmas missions, come about? If you guys remember the do Toy want, Commander Christmas missions, like, I don't know, do you want to answer that, Simon? God, uh, <laughs> you might not have been around for the Toy Commander Christmas missions, but you definitely remember like how the the disc came about. Yeah, did we have a disc for issue one or not? I can't remember whether it was a... No was disc. It? Right. Yeah, good. no disc for the very first one. We had ones after that, though. That's right, for the, for the second issue. Um, no, I don't remember much about it, apart from um, it being a little bit of, bit of... It was a bit crazy in terms of what, what was going to go on the disc and when we were going to get to know about it. <laughs> Because yeah, it was completely done by Sega, right? Yeah, it was totally separately done, and and um, and we printed our you know logo and stuff on it, and it was done at a sort of a separate facility and all of that, and then they kind of it would kind of meet the magazine and be bagged, you know. So it was this sort of, it was always a little bit dicey. I, mean, I remember every issue, uh, what was going to happen with the disc? Was it going to make it on time? You know, was was the big exclusive that we wanted going to be on there? Um, you know, so that was that was uh, that was t that was kind of. It was always a little bit of a, um, like, hey, what's going to happen this month? Mm -hmm. Oh, so um, you guys didn't get to choose what was on the disc? No, no, no we definitely didn't. Uh, no, those those were, I think, marketing deals done by Sega. I think it was uh, all all on their end. I think, yeah. Huh. 
Now yeah. I know who I to remember. blame for the uh, truth video that was on there, the anti-drug ads. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I forgot about that. The Jurassic 5 music video. Yeah, was I was actually going to ask about the Jurassic 5 video. It was so bizarre. I was like, why is this on my disc? But I guess it makes well, sense now. Well, I mean, the thing was that Sega put together all the demos, definitely. I knew that we could request certain videos when we wanted to. Because I remember there were some um, contests that we did, like, oh, if you win this contest, send in a video. We got some amazing videos from readers at the time, I remember, for some of the contests. But we always tried to get some of those videos on the disc, too. I don't remember now if any of them did from the contest that we did, the video contest we did. I don't believe but, that. But, yeah, because it was all done through Sega, so... Which is 100% different than how they were done on OXM when I started there. So it was, it was very different where on OXM we pretty much, we were in charge of getting the content for that disc. I mean, it still had to be certified and everything through Microsoft. Mm-hmm. But in the ODCM's case, um, like we, they just kind of put it together. It was, it was almost like, um, remember that for PlayStation, there was a PlayStation Underground like, mm. they sent out that disc and everything um, with demos, and I think there might have been a mini game or something on there. It was kind of the same deal, but we were the outlet that people got that disc from, as opposed to with PlayStation Underground, they just sent it out to, like, club members of it or something. Yeah, it was more It was more official than the magazine, in a way, you know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I loved how you guys had to play up some things, even though I'm sure you weren't that excited, like... Uh, I remember there was a bit playing up the Jurassic 5 video. Hey, guys, check it out. But um, <laughs> Don't no. even, like the Jurassic, I remember it by name, but I'm like trying to remember why that even ended up on. I, I, they had a Jet Set Radio song in the United States version. That's, That's the only, but it wasn't the song from the game. But it actually, it did get me into the group and I bought their CD, so... Yeah, at least it wasn't complete. Like, at least it was a pretty <laughs> decent group as opposed to, like, something really terrible. Yeah. But, yeah. but still... Yeah. I'm surprised surprised Fred Durst didn't make it on the demo disc. He was in one of your issues a lot. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> Member of Saganet. So Oh uh, Lord. Um, George, do you have another question? Um, I actually had a question about the magazine design. Cause uh, I remember when I when I started getting them, I always kinda like I kinda liked the idea that it was bigger, but it also looked weird when you put them in you know, in your shelves. So, like, was that design, like, the bigger cover and, like, you guys always used, like, I don't know how to describe it, but it was, like, the covers always had, like, a, a really, like, attractive color scheme. Metallic paint, too. Yeah, a lot of metallic. metallic paint. Yeah, it was, like, it felt like a premium magazine. Was that, yeah, like, that... on purpose? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I, I fought tooth and nail for that kind of stuff, as Fran knows. I was pretty, uh... I was very into design at the time, and um, and and I had an amazing design team working with me, with with Dave and Dan, and, and um, we just we, we sort of convinced uh, Imagine, you know, to do the most high quality thing possible. I mean, it had an amazing uh, uh, quality of cover, um, you know, and the bag was great, and we had these fifth colors we call them, which is the silvers or the the bright orange. You know, these are called fifth colors because. On a printing press, you normally have four, and you have to pay extra if you want, you know, silver or, or bright orange, you know. And it, uh, I'm, I'm going to interrupt just for a second, mm-hmm. Simon. And this is total insider baseball, but going through old issues of, of Dreamcast Mag, I'm like, was he high? How did he get a fucking fifth color 
in the run of book pages in this magazine. That must have cost a fortune. <laughs> and I was like, that's crazy because there's like silver in there. And then there, I remember there's like a fluoro pink. I think, you know? I, th- I think part of how, so I was, I was an untested EIC when I, when I got that job. And I think part of how um, Imagine uh, sold me to Sega as the EIC was that I had been on Edge and Next Generation. And these, you know, and I would bring this sort of, you know, I don't know, this kind of vibe from those, but which were very high quality magazines, right? And that we would, that this was going to be done to that standard. I think that's what Imagine went to Sega with. That's how they got it, that deal. You were going to bring the classy. Yeah, we, we were, yeah, we were going to, we were going to, we were going to spend on this thing. You know, the way that we have done with Edge in the UK and, and, and by the way, Sega, the way that we've done with Next Generation, um, mm-hmm. you know, so, so you know we're going to do a great job with this. And then it was kind of like, okay, Simon, you know, go to town. Um, and I, and I did, and and then it was kind of like you know, uh, and and I remember I remember Dan and Dave like sitting down with them, and we'd come up with these great ideas for for features, and it was just, you know, I mean, it was so much fun because we had this. I, I remember other magazines being kind of jealous actually that we had this um, bigger format. You know, it was a it was a wide format magazine. We had fifth colors. You know, we had, it was it was kind of they really splashed out on it really i feel like imagine did right by sega by the sega dreamcast magazine in terms it, of quality yeah it really was a beautiful magazine and yeah. the only other stuff i've got in my collection that comes close is next gen like mm. the first run before they changed paper stock and it kind of went you <laughs> <Yeah>. know. <laughs> that's that would have been funny if sega had said to them wait you mean the current next gen or do you mean the old next gen <laughs> Which oh poor next gen um <laughs> Yeah. yeah, but those mags are beautiful, and those discs. I mean, we got Sega Swirl, and we got the browser. You can't hate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Super Boom Tread Troopers. I remember that game for the Dreamcast demo oh, discs. That's right. <laughs> oh, my God. Right. Can't get anywhere else. So. That's crazy. <laughs> there might be a reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that, but I also forgot, like, until I was recently reminded about Sega Swirl. It's like four players, and, you know, and I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe that. We, crazy about I, I don't know how many years ago but um one of the other sites i work on we did a the top 100 dreamcast games and sega swirl broke the top 100 so <laughs> it's, awesome. there's definitely love for it i was gonna say too uh xbox nation was a magazine i really loved um moving on from the official dreamcast magazine in fact uh simon so much more so much so that i bought it about six months before I even considered buying an Xbox. It was probably the magazine that sold me on it. Uh, <laughs> did you buy the one that had all the spelling mistakes in it? I hope I didn't. But, <laughs> Way to upsell it, Simon. But definitely the Panzer, there was just a lot of Sega love in it. And I even started noting that there are names that were shared between that and uh, ODCM. I mean, at the time, it's not like I read press releases going, oh, it looks like Simon's moving on to, you know, it, it just... <laughs> It had that vibe, and it wasn't until later I realized it was almost like a successor to ODCM. I especially like the um, uh, Xbox in Japan articles. There was one about how it was sold like porn in black plastic bags. <laughs> oh my God. We, um, yeah, we were a little bit irreverent, I think. And, you might have gotten a call on that one. That one, yeah, yeah. But... Um, <laughs> That was that was that was great fun. I mean, I had I had uh, I did I had Evan right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it was kind of a little bit of a ODCM redux, a little bit, um, you know. But um, yeah, we uh, it was great fun. You know, it didn't actually sell that well. Mm-hmm. 
we in fact we had uh, we had to relaunch it completely at one point because the sales were so poor uh because we really try, we were really about doing something that we we what happened was that our, our bosses basically said that we don't care just do something that screws with uh with imagine you know uh <laughs> with future and um and so we just did this thing and they they we kind of had carte blanche really and we weren't really worried about how it sold uh and then as eventually happens in publishing uh, quite often is that someone that someone somewhere looks at a spreadsheet and says holy shit we're losing hundreds of thousands of <laughs> Um, maybe, maybe someone should make this a commercial product, and then uh, and then you kind of have to sit down and go, yeah, all right then. Um, and you know, we we redid it, but um, but yeah, we we kind of uh, we, we we're kind of going the edge route with that one. But uh, but back to you know the official Dreamcast magazine. I mean, mm-hmm. it was it was um, a really creative uh, a really creative time actually for I think all of us. And um, and a really fun time too. Um, you know, we just we had such a laugh making that magazine. I remember, and it was one of the one of the best times in my life, my work life anyway. I think it really was. Yeah, yeah. as was, a reader, it really showed too. I think it looked like you guys were having a lot of fun. I saw oh. parties that I wanted to be invited to as a kid. I was like, oh, I want to be there. <laughs> Barry, you you want them to invite you? Like they call you up, they're like, come, you kid, yeah, come party with us. <laughs> Well, it's always, it's always about, at the end of the day, it's always about who you're working with. And uh, I just had the best people to work with. You know, it was just fantastic. So, you know, I, I really do look fondly, fondly on those days. That's awesome. Um, so I guess to wrap things up, uh, just uh, what are you guys working on now? I know um, Francesca's on uh, this little magazine called Official Xbox Magazine as editor-in-chief which is pretty awesome. Um, <laughs> so I guess, uh, where could people maybe find your writings or um, follow you um, and what you're all up to right now? Uh, Fran? Um, I'm on OXM, so you can find me there. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. or fo- I, If I'm supposed to be a good, a good uh, employee, you could follow OXM on Twitter. At, um, at OXM, but that's boring because that's just news stories. So, but um, you can follow me on Twitter at Tomobiki. So, excellent, Simon. So I kind of went. I went over to the dark side a little bit. I went into custom publishing, so uh, making magazines and websites for brands, and uh, and and started a company with a couple of guys um, last year. So, um, and I've since since left that, and I'm I'm consulting in that space now. So I kind of do sort of media publishing, content strategy consulting. So, not nearly as interesting or fun as uh, making an official Dreamcast magazine, sadly. But um, but I am he also he also paints. So grill him about his paintings. Oh, really? really cool. <laughs> Maybe we'll give one out or something. Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> actually, yeah, I kind of I don't really talk much about that, do I? Um, I do actually uh, draw robots and make prints. Um, and uh, there's 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 a website you can find them on called ee2f.com. Uh, so um, letter e twice and then the number two and then f.com. Um, if anybody's interested, uh, and I'm on Twitter too, and I, I still I tweet about gaming and and I'm still very much uh, a gamer and. Um, you know, I, I, uh, in fact, I'm, I might even be more of a gamer now than I was uh, a few years ago. Uh, now that I'm, you know, not directly associated with the industry, it's kind of given me time to to play more. So nice. And uh, 
Ricardo? Yeah, so I uh, I'm 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 consulting. Uh, so I do um, production and a little bit of like marketing and PR consulting too for games um, for a bunch of different companies, including ironically Sega still. Nice. Um, so that's a lot of fun. Uh, I get really busy with that, so I'm not as great as I should be on Twitter, but uh, I'm at GS underscore RT. And I have a Tumblr, which hasn't been updated in like two years. <laughs> uh, but that's where writing will be eventually, probably. Awesome. Um, so, and that's linked on my, on my Twitter, too. Okay, well, George, do you have any uh, anything uh, to say? I want to I want to share a picture that you you uh, put on Instagram 14 months ago, and it took me like three like 30 minutes to find. But uh, it's from the magazine. Uh-oh. It's a photo shoot actually with Samba de Amigo that we we talked a lot about. Uh, there's a photo. Uh, you guys remember that? Uh, <laughs> Who's let's, who, uh, let's see. That's Who's there? Good. Who's that's a pretty good Photoshop skills. Oh my god. <laughs> Oh God, that's you, Fran. I know, nice, right? Like I need that haunting me. But yeah, there's uh, Evan is there in the foreground, um, and Evan is the one who um, went, eventually went over and worked with Simon on um, XBN over at Ziff. Uh, Dina Fair is the next person. She was our managing editor. That's right. And then, um, and then the third one over is Chris Charla, who took over EIC duties for Simon when Simon went to Revolution and. Um, and Chris is now with the director on ID at Xbox, like the indie developer program up there. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, like people went on to some pretty cool stuff. Uh, Dave Corden is the one in there. This was actually his apartment, him, his and his um, then-girlfriend's apartment that this whole thing was shot in. And he actually works with me. He's my art director on OXM. Oh, wow. So, um, and, uh, like, who? Dan Fitzpatrick, he still works at Future. He was the art director. Um God, let's play catch up. So there's like, <laughs> you know, um, so Dan Fitzpatrick, he still works at Future, but in a kind of a um, outside of traditional design now. Um, he does mostly like JavaScript and stuff like that. And then, um, and then I'm trying to think of who else was there. Randy Nelson. I don't know what Randy does now, but I still follow him on Twitter and bump into him every now and again. Mm. He was one of the original like guys on um, on Dreamcast magazine. And then there was. Um, Greg Hahn, who was the original, like, for Issue Zero, he was the art director on Issue Zero. He actually heads up, he moved down to L.A. and um, and works on um, a website now called Department Therapy. Okay. It's, um, it's a pretty cool website, but he, he's on that now. And, um, and that has a bunch of satellite, def- different satellite sites. But I didn't realize it was as big as it was. But then, um, and then who else was there? There was Keith Stewart who used to be, like, he, he was on ODCM in the UK mm. and then went on to become EIC of ODCM UK. And I believe he works for, he's kind of like a, he's kind of one of the, like, bigger voices in games journalism right now. He, yeah. he, worked, so, he writes for games, uh, for Guardian, The Guardian in the yeah, UK. He just got promoted, actually. He's running the games section for The Guardian in the UK, which is... And The Guardian expanded into into the US now, so they're in New York, too. Oh, wow. And, oh, wow. Uh, I mean, he writes great stuff. He's fantastic. Keith is so good. He was actually uh, my teammate on Edge years ago. Um, that's where I met Keith. So, yeah. So, Keith was actually... Uh, he was a section editor, a uh, staff writer originally, and a section editor on Edge magazine way back, way back in the day. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. But yeah, I still read his stuff now and it's so good. Yeah. But, um, and uh, Dina, I believe she went on and she wrote a book. Yeah. Two. I can't remember. Exa- Did she write two books? Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, yep. wow. Um, yeah. They were, I'm not, I, I can't remember the, na- the name of the books, but they were um, kind of guides for young women who were about to go to college kind of thing. It was kind of like uh, Pocket Mom, I think they were called. Like, they were kind of like, it was kind of sage advice from your mom that you could have in a little book. Uh, and I think they, they did quite well, you know, and, and uh, she did those. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, yeah. I, I have, oh, sorry. Go on. No, 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 no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I had one more image, and it's the same, actually, the same uh, party thing, uh, the party <laughs> uh, feature that you guys did. <laughs> but this one has, like, a, it's Evan hitting on Ooh La La. I don't remember, you remember this one. But oh, yes, I do. What kind of music were you guys playing in the background? <laughs> you guys have a DJ. Sonic likes it. Yeah, Sonic looks like he's farting hard. Oh, you know who that is in the background? That's Vince Matthews. He he headed up Pocket Gamer, I believe. That's he was the of Pocket. Yeah, that's Vince Matthews in the background. Um, I have no idea what the music was. All I know is that Sega was really upset about that, <laughs> that illustration of Ula. <laughs> because because um, at the time, like they didn't care that we because that's not done by Sega. It was done by. Um, do you remember? Um, her pen name was Nasca. She, oh, she, she did the Power Stone cover. That was yeah, a great she cover. did the Power Stone cover. And she did the Jet Set cover. Yeah, do you remember? right. Yeah. And um, and she um, her real life name is I don't know if that's cool, but it's been so many so long. Real life name was Emi Toyonaga, and um, and she was an artist illustrator, and she actually went on to work at EA. Like she was the the main the head artist on I think it was My Sims. And um, if you look it up, like the some of the Sims games that she worked on definitely show some of that. But she was the one who actually illustrated that for us. And I think Sega didn't mind it so much because Sega was very cool about this stuff. But I think whenever it came to their characters, they were always worried about misrepresentation if we actually did the illustrations ourselves or didn't get them approved because they didn't want them to come off as like kids or in compromising position <laughs> like getting hit on by Evan with a beer bottle yeah it's so, uh, um, it's pretty funny that you say that we did an interview with Sumo Digital that did All Stars Racing and they said that one of the toughest characters to nail down like feedback wise was Ulala because they had to like had to get like permission for the mo- like the way she moved and everything so it's okay. actually kind of yeah, weird yeah. They were very, very picky about that stuff. And I mean, of course, it's their property, you know, so it makes sense that they would be. But at the same time, I remember um, there was also another another illustration we did um, for Ula Allah in one of the earlier issues, maybe, that had her. I think it was like raining money or raining coins. And oh, she had yeah. an umbrella. And they were really upset about that, too. So I'm like thinking, like, did we just not learn? Like, we did it a second time, you know? Or did we just not care? I, just, I don't I just remember. Did, I just think we did whatever we thought served the, the feature or the article. I think that's that was the that was the mindset, and we felt very protected. I think by Imagine at the time, you know, by you guys a, just uh, keeping uh, it real. By the company, <laughs> apparently we but were. I, I think they were pretty good at defending, you know, us. Actually, uh, they 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 kept I think a lot of uh, a lot of shit from rolling downhill and landing on our heads. <laughs> I think I think quite, sure. they were pretty good about that. Yeah. Sure. Well, so any any other questions? I don't <laughs> Sorry, I told so. you it was going to take like forty minutes to answer. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Yeah. No, I, I don't believe I have any other questions, but I really want to thank all three of you for joining us on our 50th show. Um, it's uh, It's been an awesome discussion. Lots of really cool things revealed. Um, and uh, it's it's been great just meeting all of you. You too. Thanks, guys. Ditto. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was fun to reminisce, although slightly sad now. <laughs> yeah, now we're just going to go cry. Oh. Now but, I'm just going to yeah, go play yeah. my Dreamcast. Well, we we would love to have all of you or any of you on for future shows if you want to talk about specific games or even uh, current games, because we definitely cover that stuff, too. So um, we'll definitely be in touch for future episodes if you're interested. Yeah, I'd love to. Sounds great. Sure thing. Yeah, you guys know where to find lot, us. Thanks a lot, you guys. Yeah. 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 Thanks a lot for inviting us on and stuff. It was a lot of fun. And, um, and also, hopefully, you know, your listeners enjoy it, too. So. Oh, absolutely. Well, I guess that wraps up the show. So uh, let's all say our goodbyes from me. It's goodbye, George. See you guys next week. And from Francesca, Simon, yeah, and thanks. Ricardo. Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. And happy 14th anniversary, Dreamcast. Yeah, thanks very much. It's been, uh, it's been great. And it's been great to catch up with all of you. And yeah, finally. Every, everybody go play some Dreamcast. <laughs> <laughs> channel